Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This is episode 335, where I talk with astrologer Richard Tarnas about the significations and the meaning of the planet Pluto in astrology. So, Richard is the author of one of my favorite books on astrology titled Cosmos and Psyche, which was published in 2006. Uh, this ended up being a pretty wide ranging discussion where we covered a lot of different things related to Pluto and occasionally went on some digressions about other interesting topics in astrology. Early on at the beginning of the episode, we did have a bit of a digression about the recent Saturn Pluto conjunction that occurred at the beginning of 2020 and how that coincided with the onset of the pandemic. And um, I wanted to talk with him about this a little bit at the top of the episode because he was one of the few astrologers who had done the historical research in order to demonstrate how Saturn-Pluto alignments had coincided with some pretty major turning points in world history in the past, including pandemics and other major events. So I thought it was worth it to, to go on this digression at the beginning of the episode to check in with him to see how he felt about uh, some of his work in retrospect on that topic and how things had actually played out over the past couple of years. So the last time he was on the podcast was in episode 84 in 2016 in order to mark the 10-year anniversary of Cosmos and Psyche. So that did uh, give us some insight into Pluto going through that digression, and then eventually we get straight into our topic and start talking in more detail about the broader significations of the planet Pluto, including not just the super negative ones related to pandemics, but also some of the more positive ones in order to balance things out. Um, I did want to let people know that if they want to jump straight to that point, I did create timestamps for this episode, which are available both in the video version in the description below this video on YouTube, or in the audio version, you can find the timestamps uh, on the description page on the podcast website at theastrologypodcast.com. So I'll also put links to my previous interview with Richard Tarnas uh, and other relevant website links in the description below this episode. All right, with that introduction out of the way, let's get started with the interview. Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Richard Tarnas about the meaning of Pluto in astrology and what it signifies and how astrologers developed an understanding of this planet or dwarf planet historically. So today is Tuesday, December 28th, 2021, starting at 1.59 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 333rd episode of the show. So hey, Richard, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Chris. Good to see you again. Yeah, so this is your second appearance on the show. You previously appeared in episode 84 in 2016 to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of your book, Cosmos and Psyche, Intimations of a New World View. And I can't believe it's been, what, almost five, six years since that time at this point? Yeah, time, time, time is really flying these days, at least, at least for some of us. I know it also, depending on the lockdown experience, uh, it can be both moving almost at a glacial pace and also moving so fast as if you know the day starts and ends uh, in about a quarter of the time one needs yeah especially last year going through the the saturn pluto conjunction and then the saturn uranus square sort of alternating between those two it seemed like at different points um, so you recently took part in a new documentary series that's coming out in january called changing of the gods which is a 10-part series 
uh, directed by Kenny Asurbel. Asurbel, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever I read his name, I always want to ask if he's related to the seventh century Assyrian king Ashurbanipal, but it's probably not not related in any way. So um, this is coming out. This has been a long time in coming out. I think they've been working on it since twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen or so, right? That's right. Yeah, a, a full. Uh, Certainly, a full seven years uh, in in production. It started uh, in the um, even just at the kind of center central period of the Uranus Pluto square, and was focusing on the uh, the Uranus Pluto cycle that um, I had basically uh, focused one part of Cosmos and Psyche on that cycle historically, the the big world transit cycles, the conjunctions, the oppositions. And the squares in particular, and uh, Kenny Ossible, who is the co-founder of Bioneers, they um, they wanted to do a film that basically focused particularly on this big Uranus Pluto square that was more beginning when they first conceived the film, and then uh, it uh, it became such a big project, moving from a feature film to a, a ten part. Uh, documentary series that it it went the entire period of the Uranus Pluto square uh, in in making it. But the advantage of it is that of uh, doing it that way is that you really get a a big overview of that um, of that alignment and the cultural correlations that that took place, the archetypal phenomena that is so evocative of the uh, Uranus Pluto energies and. Have been played out so dramatically over the last, well, uh, over the last decade or, or so. Yeah, I watched the the first half of the series already, and I I felt especially that episodes four and five were really compelling, where they were tying it into, um, on the one hand, uh, the women's rights movements and some of the developments that happened in the 1960s, and how those tied in with previous cycles, and then how we saw a continuation of some of those themes. In the past decade, at the Uranus-Pluto square, um, but then also the civil rights movement, which was also a you know key defining moment in the 1960s with the conjunction, and then how that was tied into broader cycles as well. Exactly right. Going back earlier to the beginnings of the abolitionist movement, and going right up through the the most recent square with uh, Black Lives Matter, for example, um, just huge. There's all. There always seems to be a kind of um, intensified constellating of of the uh, archetypal energies around both uh, Uranus and, and Pluto. Those kind of complexes of, of of meanings and impulses that we've experienced in in human life, and they seem to uh, track very uh, precisely. As you look through the centuries, every time Uranus and Pluto, for example, come into conjunction or opposition or square, there's a, a period of you know usually more more a bit more than a decade where uh, you see whether it's the uh, women's suffrage, women's uh, you know feminism, women's uh, liberation, th- those movements just really get activated uh, in in. Uh, new ways that build on what's happened before, but uh, clearly come into cultural focus and intensified activism and so forth. 
and awareness. And then the same thing with the civil rights movement, same thing also, uh, I should say civil rights movements, because uh, there's many forms. Same thing with uh, uh, gay liberation. Um, and uh, also uh, as a so socially, social political revolutionary phenomena more generally, um, uh, and also uh, technological revolutions, scientific revolutions, etc. Seems to have something, you know, obviously the Uranus, uh, the planet Uranus astrologically has so much to do with change and revolution and the impulse to rebel and to overthrow the, the present um, status quo on behalf of greater freedom, greater uh, um, advance of knowledge, uh, technological uh, uh, and scientific breakthroughs and so forth, artistic uh, innovations. Um, and then the Plutonic energy, which I know is what our focus is going to be uh, today, uh, the, the Plutonic seems to intensify whatever other archetype it's in coming into contact with. And so, and it often does this on a kind of mass level, uh, almost to overwhelming proportions. Uh, and so when that happens and you combine it with the Uranus uh, kind of Uranian Promethean impulse towards towards change and rebellion and originality and innovation, freedom. There is a massive uh, uh, intensification both in frequency and in kind of mass phenomena that reflect uh, Promethean Uranian uh, qualities. There's also a, 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 the other way it works, of course, is that whatever Uranus touches, it activates in a kind of sudden, unexpected way with unex unpredictable consequences, and it tends to be rather creative uh, in its um, imp implications or, or consequences. And so uh, when, when you're, and, and there can be a kind of genius level to it or a, a kind of a originality to how it expresses itself, and when that's combined with, say, Venus, it would more come through, you know, the arts or through romantic or social awakenings of some kind, or 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 changes, disruptions, um, or artistic uh, creativity is stimulated. But when Uranus is hitting Pluto, it liberates the the Plutonic uh, uh, archetype in so many ways, and that's one of the things I think we'll probably focus on today. Yeah, for sure. Um, and and watching that series gave me some new insights into Pluto and the meaning of Pluto in the way they were taking your work from Cosmos and Psyche and just giving it um, focusing on certain pieces of it in a you know easy to digest and more presentable form of of whatever what was otherwise a really dense book that you spent a long time working on. Um, and speaking of that, I mean, has it been despite all of the Obviously, the terrible things that have happened over the past two years since the pandemic has it been interesting for you to see how the Saturn Pluto conjunction ended up working out, and how literally and how much some of your previous research tied into and made sense of what happened over the past couple of years? I mean, a lot of people, a lot of astrologers at least, look to your work when the pandemic um, happened in order to help contextualize what was happening and felt like. The pandemic, to some extent, was a little bit of a fulfillment of some of the things you had written back in 2006 in terms of how you had articulated some of those energies. 
Um, how what was your feeling about that over the past couple of years? Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, uh, the flow of life is always uh, unpredictable in a concrete way. You don't know how the specifics are going to unfold. So much depends on on uh, human agency and and the 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 unpredictable uh, interactions of multiple factors. But astrologers have this remarkable. Um, gift, really, a, a gift from the cosmos that allows us to get a glimpse into what are the archetypal energies that are going to be activated at a given time, because it's been so consistent with uh, and so visible. Once you, once you know how to read this, the, the cosmic symbolism, um, and have a have a decent sense of symbol and archetype and so forth. It, it's uh, what Stan Groff uh, calls it's a Rosetta Stone. It really kind of gives us a um, remarkable translation device of being able, or like a telescope, to see into the deeper um, <clears throat> energies and and meanings that are active at, at a given point. So it's not that I was being that. Uh, I certainly wasn't being clairvoyant in say, thinking, you know, that when the Saturn-Pluto conjunction comes, there would be major uh, phenomena of a certain character. I was just being kind of empirical. If you look, every time Saturn and Pluto come into hard aspect, like the the conjunctions and the oppositions, uh, as well as the squares, you you see a very decisive. Uh, turning points in history where they uh, uh, tend to be quite challenging. Um, and if we just looked at the, the conjunctions and oppositions of, of the, you know, of our lifetime, my lifetime now, seven decades, uh, it's quite striking how, uh, or let's just look at the 20th century. I mean, the, the Saturn-Pluto cycle, it's First conjunction of the 20th centuries, 1914, uh, and the um, you know basic, basically, particularly from 14 to 16, very tight uh, conjunction, and that's World War One. Um, there, there can be a, uh, and then World War, the, the Great Depression um, comes in under the the next opposition, and then World War Two begins right as Saturn and Pluto come into the square in 1939. Uh, and then the Cold War begins under the conjunction of 46-48, where you've got you know the world kind of held in uh, this great uh, conflict be that has nuclear uh, intensity. Uh, and then it most recently, I mean, like the like 9/11 is what happened, of course, under the the most recent Saturn-Pluto opposition. Did you mention the AIDS epidemic of eighty one conjunction? Yeah, that's right. AIDS epidemic under the, under the preceding one, and of course, in cosmos and psyche, I go back to earlier centuries and talked about the uh, the correlations with the with the Black Death or the the, the, the enormous uh, plague that swept through Europe and and much of the world under the Saturn Pluto cycle of the mid mid fourteenth century. So there. Because Saturn has to do with that which uh, contracts and uh, limits, 
there there often seems to be you know Pluto intensifies that, so it's it's often a kind of contraction moment in history, uh, and there can be you know the Saturn Pluto combination is is often one of confinement of uh, I mean there's there's many good things that are also characteristic of Saturn Pluto the discipline the the capacity for courage under great uh, pressure of facing evil or facing um, extremely dangerous circumstances, uh, tremendous uh, powers of uh, organization and ordering and um, extremely hard hard labor being focused on a particular purpose that is sustained day after day with, with great intensity. All those are classic Saturn-Pluto virtues. And people often are able to kind of restructure their life in a certain way because they're accessing these deeper capacities for Plutonic transformation, but with a Saturnian discipline and foundation that will endure. And often the things that happen under the Saturn-Pluto alignments uh, tend to uh, endure in their consequences. It's also a period, Saturn and Pluto, of much greater awareness of uh, environmental issues, ecology, uh, with with more of an apocalyptic um, potential in the uh, in the atmosphere, uh, and you know somebody like um, uh, Greta Thunberg, uh, who is uh, born under the preceding Saturn Pluto opposition, right during the two thousand one to two thousand four period, then she comes into prominence as a as a great uh, spokes woman uh, on behalf of the awareness of the tremendous gravity of our global ecological situation. And Saturn, because Saturn relates to gravity, um, and Pluto intensifies whatever it touches, Saturn-Pluto periods tend to have a quality of great gravity. Gravitas, like this is morally serious. This We really have to focus. This is life and death uh, issues are at stake, et cetera. But also gravity, uh, even in the literal Newtonian sense, um, Saturn relates to, and like a, the Saturn-Pluto, like heaviness of like a, a great iron safe or a titanic uh, uh Ship that weighs, you know, countless tons. Those are steel and concrete. Those are very Saturn Pluto. The whole nine one one twin towers, Saturn Pluto, started under Saturn Pluto in the mid sixties and fell fell under the the next opposition in the uh, in two thousand one. One last thing about the Saturn Pluto, you've got that tendency towards confinement, and suddenly with the Saturn Pluto everyone's confined to their homes and we're separated from each other. And there's tremendous sense of isolation. Um, and those who aren't able to seclude and separate and, and, uh, but have to be out on the front lines as healthcare workers or as people who um, are, are carrying the the, the needed infrastructure of you know the deliveries the uh, all the things that have to happen just to keep people fed and warm and so forth during this crisis all these people were being exposed to covid um, because 
their jobs, their uh, the the way the social um, inequalities uh, are hierarchically established in our in our society, and um, they're facing the Saturn Pluto more at that at that level of facing death, facing mortality, risking themselves with with very hard labor, while others are experiencing it through solitude and loneliness and feeling cut off, grandparents and grandchildren not able to hug each other and um, couples separated uh, and and so forth. Um, we, we were also all very familiar with the hyper-intensification of the Saturn archetype these last two to three years, two years in particular. I, I, rem- I have this really distinct memory during the early part of the pandemic. There was an astrologer, because all so many, such a generation of astrologers have come in over the past 10 years, and, and everyone has read your book at this point. And, and the emphasis on the Saturn Pluto cycle was very clear because you wrote your book partially in the aftermath of 9 11. So you actually spent a, quite a bit of time talking about the Saturn Pluto opposition that happened that was very close at the time. Um, so I just did you see that meme of where somebody had changed the the title of your book at some point during the the pandemic? Um, I think an astrologer named Ursula posted this in like March of twenty 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 or something like that. I don't know yes, if you ever. I'd, yeah, uh, my daughter Becca Tarnas, who's who's an astrologer, she she sent it over to me. Said she said you you know your book's a success when it's been turned into a meme. <laughs> Yeah, when you've been memed. So for the audio listeners, uh, so it just says instead of the title, it says I, I fucking warned you, I fucking told you, bro. Intimations of a new worldview, Richard Tarnas. And and, and it's got uh, because the uh, the cover uh, which I had designed had um, a basically a god and a goddess both pointing at um, both pointing at. Uh, at the uh, surface of the earth, and what's you know, there, there's a there's a sense of the gods, um, both being at odds with each other, and at and also letting the earth earthlings know that they had they had really screwed up, and that actually the warnings had been out there, as in cosmos and psyche. <laughs> yeah, that was a, a very clever, uh, very clever meme. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, despite the hardships, and obviously nobody revels in that. It seemed like, you know, to the extent that you had covered that so much, and the archetypal way that you had described those alignments worked out pretty well. When the next major one came about, it seemed like a successful prediction, or some um, should have been somewhat fulfilling in terms of that. Uh, to whatever extent, you know, you might have been striving to anticipate what cert- certain upcoming cycles might bring. Well, you know, um, I think I experienced that more when I was younger because, you know, at this point I've been doing, uh, studying astrology and, and kind of had a handle on, on the, on the larger, both the archetypal meanings, but the big cycles, you know, starting, uh, pretty clearly by the late seventies. So, um, the Saturn Pluto conjunction of the early eighties was the first one that where I was seeing things that I kind of would have anticipated archetypally and astrologically seeing come to bear uh, with, you know, I, again, I, I, I spend a bit of time in Cosmos and Psyche discussing that particular conjunction. You brought up the AIDS uh, epidemic as being one kind of mass encounter with mortality. Um, those who are older will remember that 
that was the period when the nu- when the Cold War had reached such an intensity uh, of where the nuclear, uh, what was called the Sword of Damocles, was um, hovering over uh, humanity with such dangerous precariousness. And uh, Ronald Reagan was calling the Soviet Union the evil empire, and this was before Gorbachev. And so the last uh, premiers of uh, and the Kremlin um, leaders were in there. There were so many nuclear missiles um, placed in Europe to obliterate uh, most of the world within seconds, and any little mistake could have triggered it. That this this catalyzed such an awareness of of our um, nuclear danger that mass demonstrations, the biggest that had ever been seen, happened all around the world at that time, uh, particularly under the Jupiter Uranus conjunction there. But but it was the Saturn Pluto gravity of the danger that was really pushing um, that awareness and. You know, the apocalyptic intensity comes in more from the Pluto. Uh, in fact, there were conferences on what is the meaning of apocalypse. Depth psychologists like James Hillman were, were speaking at conferences where they were examining the symbol of the, of the apocalypse. There was a extremely popular, uh, television film called The Day After, uh, that just, um, was all about what would happen the day after a nuclear holocaust, you know, and it was very vivid bringing home to many people what was at stake. Um, the Fate of the Earth was a big book at that point by Jonathan Shell, who interestingly first made his, um, where he's bringing the attention to this nuclear danger with vivid prose. And he is the person who, um, uh, well, let's see, Jonathan Shell wrote that, and then John Hersey, under the preceding Saturn-Pluto conjunction, wrote the book on uh, on Hiroshima that had such an impact on, on. Anyway, so it's not so much that I, yeah, I I didn't take too much um, pleasure in seeing the the cycle fulfilled, particularly when some of the things that were happening were just so. You know, some things are avoidable. Um, the pandemic didn't have to be this bad. You know, China could have acted in a different way. Uh, the United States, uh, Trump was government, could have acted in a different way. Uh, there were all sorts of ways it didn't have to get to this level. Or the under the last Saturn-Pluto opposition, we had the, um, you know, the war against terror was started. And... The invasion of Afghanistan, the invasion of uh, Iraq, uh, against tremendous opposition, popular opposition here in the U.S. and around the world to that invasion, and uh, all during this Saturn-Pluto um, conjunction, a lot of the consequences of those decisions have been uh, uh, come home to roost. Uh, the in the Middle East and in Iraq and um, Afghanistan. Uh, and so these are things, because this was such a repl- duplication of what had happened under the Vietnam Saturn-Pluto opposition that, you know, in the mid 60s, which also was an unnecessary war. I mean, it we're, so it's hard to take 
pleasure in in how planetary alignments are manifested in perfect conformity to their meanings, but it's it's in conformity to a certain range of those meanings up in their, their shadow side that didn't have to be uh, constellated if there had been a more conscious relationship to to those archetypes. If and this is something I hope we we go into today is is uh, how we can take. Uh, in this case, we're talking about the Saturn-Pluto energies, but we could also talk about it in terms of the um, uh, Pluto just generally, or just the degree to which we enter into the Plutonic, um, the deeper realms of the Plutonic archetype and become conscious of them inside ourselves and uh, in the world, and and uh, come into a more um, reflective and uh, skillful way of enacting them, because uh, they're going to come through. The gods are they 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 express themselves, the, but it, to a, an extraordinary extent, human beings have the capacity to. Um, inflect the direction or the quality to a higher or lower or a a, a more um, you know problematic or a more life enhancing range of the spectrum of archetypal possibilities that each planet and planetary complex represents. And the Plutonic is, in some ways, the one that requires the most um, consciousness to come into relationship to. Because when we don't, we're we're driven by it like puppets. It's 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 such raw instinctual energy. It's coming from the depths of of nature. It's coming from what Freud called the id, you know, or the Darwinian uh, struggle for life, or or Nietzsche's uh, will to power. All of which are both healthy and um, have uh, problematic potentials when they are acted out unconsciously and part of our human challenge is to bring a a kind of psychological reflection uh reflectiveness a uh, a thoughtfulness a a being able to kind of come into a collaborative relationship with these powerful archetypes rather than just being possessed by them or trying to suppress them, either one of which is a, a bad bet, you know, in terms of it, how it's going to, uh, how, how the, that archetype will manifest. Yeah. Uh, maybe due to that tendency for Pluto to go to extremes, uh, maybe that's part of the reason why the need for conscious reflection of it and being careful is, is most important in some ways when dealing with that planet. Um, all right, so let's let's segue into our main topic. I couldn't help but take the opportunity to just check in and ask you how that had been going over the next past few years. But um, let's start talking about Pluto, and this is the final quote unquote planet in my series on the planets that I've been doing this year, where I went through each of the planets and did a deep dive into their significations of mean and meaning. And so we've covered Uranus already and covered Neptune, and Pluto 
was discovered on February 18, 1930, by the astronomer Clyde Tombaugh, um, working at the Lowell Observatory, who was an astronomer who had previously initiated the search for, for Pluto a, a decade or two earlier. And so it was the third large new body found in our solar system after Uranus and Neptune. And one of the issues that all of the planets, the discoveries of the new planets has raised for me is how do astrologers establish the meaning of newly discovered planets? And Pluto is one that I struggle with the most because I get the sense that the mythology of Pluto after it was named by astronomers became the primary access point that astrologers started using to develop its significations and meanings in astrology because it was named after the, the Roman god of the underworld. And uh, But with some of the earlier planets, like Uranus, there are these stories about, for example, John Varley and Uranus, and they have almost a more empirical tone in terms of how the astrologers of the time perhaps were actually first putting them in charts or looking at them in transits and trying to find out their meaning. Um, and I wasn't sure then if there's been a shift when it comes to Pluto and how much of the meanings of Pluto are empirically de derived versus derived from the mythology or the archetype. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today because I know you blend both of those approaches, but your work definitely takes that archetypal or, or sorry, the um, historical approach or the empirical approach into account so that it's not all just sort of abstract, but you have concrete reasons for developing certain meanings of Pluto? Yes. The, well, this is a very rich and complex topic. I'm glad you, you're, you're, you're wanting to address it. Um, and I, I've tried to emphasize how we, well, the, the, the mythic names that are given to the planets or the um, asteroids or uh, other plan, um, celestial bodies are, I think, should be considered as you know potential um, clues to 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 take into account. Um, we we also need to look empirically, and of course, one of the things that has been most reliable with certainly the outer three planets discovered in the modern period, Uranus, seventeen eighty one, first one with by telescope as well, and then uh, Neptune. 1846, and then Pluto in 1930, as you just mentioned. One of the things about those three is that, uh, as Dane Rudger, uh pointed out quite uh, eloquently, I think, uh, he, he pointed out the um, synchronistic phenomena that happened at the time, around the time of the, of the discoveries of those particular planets. So, you know, Uranus is discovered 1781, which is right at the very heart of the, um, it's both the periods of, of, of great revolutionary phenomena, the American Revolution, um, the uh, French Revolution, both happen within a decade on, uh, 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 of the uh, discovery, but also it's the height of the um, emancipatory enlightenment period. It's also when the birth of romanticism happens. It's when you know kings are being toppled and and uh, forces of uh, democratic uh, emancipation are really being being uh, activated. The the first um, rebellion by enslaved people ha happens, uh, and um, 
it seems as if for about 15 years or so on each side of the dis- moment of discovery, the year of discovery, there's a, that's the kind of orb uh, within which um, phenomena happen that give us a clue to the nature of that of that planet's meaning and astrologically because of course the in the modern period the outer planets and all the other planets are are basically being uh, all the other celestial bodies solar system bodies are being named by astronomers who are not necessarily uh they don't have an archetypal astrological uh, orientation um and instead they are more um they let's just take uranus neptune and pluto they were each named uranus is the was named uranus the sky god one because it was the father of of chronos saturn who was the father of jupiter zeus uh and who was the father of mercury venus and and mars um or hermes aphrodite and aries uh going in that sequence it's it's a pat, it's a patrilineal uh sequence it's patri- it's a patriarchal mythology that the greek or greco-roman um m- myths provide us with those figures and astronomers are are are, are don't have as the uppermost um motive in their mind for a choice of the planet's name they don't have an archetypal meaning an astrological meaning in mind it mercury venus mars jupiter saturn these were all known to the ancients they're visible to all of us with our naked eye and it's pretty uh you know early in the records of of uh where there is you know of course astronomy and astrology going back into those earlier millennia are are so um undifferentiated they're 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 one science they're the the great passion to understand the the movements of the uh stars and the planets the sun and the moon had a lot to do with the fact that uh they were seen as as gods and goddesses as great powers that uh, whether it was they were the gods and goddesses or whether that was the uh, celestial realm, um, the abode of the gods, and the, and as Plato's uh, uh, Epinomus, the the last dialogue that many Platonic scholars, um, Platonist scholars, attribute to Plato, written after the the Laws, that dialogue, um, Plato calls them uh, the each of those planets, Kronos, Zeus. Aphrodite. This is the this is the planet that is sacred to Zeus. This is the planet that is sacred to Cronos. Uh, so, uh, right up through that period, they are always all seen as being um, somehow related to or expressive of the the gods or and goddesses. This is not part of the rationalist uh, astronomical mentality in in the late eighteenth century when Uranus is discovered or Neptune. So instead, they, they just are seeing, well, Uranus is the next planet out from Saturn. It's twice as far from Saturn, uh, uh, twice, twice as far from the Earth as Saturn is. It tremendously expands our sense of the solar system. Let's call it uh, Uranus, who is the father of Saturn, and, uh, or of 
Kronos, and Uranus is the god of the sky, of the starry sky, um, which really fits the fact that it was so deep into the starry sky where it was developed. But as astrologers, we're um, focusing on Uranus and then Neptune and then Pluto. They they were they were also just looking empirically, and it's pretty clear that a lot of the let me just say in very, in general terms, I think the the astronomers who named Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto they had some kind of an intuitive. Uh, mm, you know, there, there's a synchronistic, you don't have to believe in astrology to maybe come up with a name that has a relationship to the to the actual archetype that may prove out astrologically. And I think it's pretty clear that Uranus has a lot, as an astrological planet, has a lot to do with the heavens, with the sky, you know, with space travel, with, with uh, air travel, with, with uh, the interest in astronomy and, and astrology and and the cosmic view and so forth. So there's something to be said uh, for Uranus's relationship to the sky. Neptune, certainly to the water. Uh, uh, every astrologer has a sense of the kind of fluidity and dis uh, dissolving energies of, of Neptune and their connection, its connection to rivers and oceans and the stream of consciousness and the, 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 um, oceanic feeling that of the mystical and so forth our metaphors are that are connected to the neptune astrological archetype tend to be quite um appropriately you know oceanic or watery so it, it makes sense that neptune they, they were onto something even though they weren't thinking astrologically and pluto when it was named um there were a, a couple of different factors came in. Um, a, a number of names were being considered. You may know the story, the uh, quite young uh, daughter of one of the people in England who was on the uh, committee to name the planet, uh, strongly suggested Pluto. Um, and PL, the first two letters of Pluto, also fit Percival Lowell, who was the man who first uh, set in motion the discovery of, of Pluto. So there was a kind of honoring of the, of the astronomer that way. Uh, yeah, you can see it in the astronomical glyph there that um, has been used so often for Pluto. And, uh, and in addition, you have uh, the... <laughs> Even the Disney cartoon figure of Pluto uh, seems to have played a role in the, um, you know, partly in the in the young girl's um, uh, thoughts about it. But I think she had more in mind than just that. Yeah, I what I was reading some, is that she had some. She did have some background in like Greek mythology or had some yes. interest in mythology, and that was part of what motivated her. That's right, and it, basically, you know, like Zeus and. Poseidon and um, Hades are, uh, were each given a different realm, you know. So Poseidon, Neptune was given the the realm of of, of the oceans and the, of the sea, and Pluto was given the realm of the underworld, Zeus the of the overworld, Mount Olympus, etc., the sky, and uh, and so there was that as well. Yeah, so, I think. Pluto in mythology had the ability to 
uh, become invisible or to cloak himself. And I think part of her rationale, she said, was that because Pluto is so distant and you could barely see it, and it was very difficult to even get a glimpse of with telescopes, that that was part of the reason why she thought um, that Pluto would be the a good name for it. Yes. So I want. So on the one hand, I want to uh, honor the 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 way in which even a non astrologically aware astronomer or astronomical committee could come up with a name. They went through several names for uh, for Uranus before they came up with Uranus. There, there it was like uh, Herschel who discovered it, named it um, Georgium Cetus, George's star after his yeah. patron, patron King George. The I French didn't we, like we, that idea. I still think we missed out on not having it called George because, like, where the planet George would be by your horoscope or transits would be much more like entertaining, just a personal yeah. level. Yeah. Um, but you know, so many of the. I mean, I think we discussed this in in another um, in in our other interview. Uh, but the so many of the qualities that we recognize as being distinctly Uranian are have to do with you know rebelliousness and unpredictability and change and uh, originality and genius and creative innovation and and the trickster and so forth. And all of these are not particularly characteristic of Uranus, the myth of Uranus, uh, but are very characteristic of the myth of Prometheus. Right. So you so so part of it is that you on the one hand recognize and acknowledge that there's some, as most astrologers now, this has become their main line of thought, that there's some synchronistic connection between the name that is given to a new celestial body and its astrological meaning, just through some sort of coincidence, just through that, that's in some ways the correct name Will be picked, uh, and that will have some meaning. But then, on the one hand, before you wrote Cosmos and Psyche in 1998, some newer astrologers may not know that you wrote a separate book called Prometheus: The Awakener, where you kind of argued that um, the mythology of Prometheus actually matched the, many of the significations that astrologers give to Uranus uh, empirically, the planet Uranus, more empirically. Than the myth of of Oranos does on its own, right? Uh, and this was a point that Stephen Arroyo made very briefly, just a single sentence in um, Astrology, Karma, and Transformation back in seventy eight. And this is uh, there's some some uh, uh, I think one or two other astrologers in earlier decades also just briefly mentioned that there's a Promethean quality there. I think there was a Frenchman who did, uh, 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 I think it was Barbeau, uh, but it's been hard to nail down a, a particular text where, where this was done. But um, I think what's we, what it allowed me to do was to start um, differentiating like we we need to like not every single thing about a myth is going to tell us about that astrological archetype there's going to be lots of details in a myth of a particular figure like zeus that is not particularly jupiterian for example zeus can act in a very saturnian way when he's being punitive or he's being um uh he's being uh, the principle of of order uh where he where he's restrictive etc um, but Zeus was also a rebel at one point, overthrowing his father 
Kronos, uh, and who did he get the help of? Prometheus to to uh, overthrow Kronos uh, uh, in that battle, uh, and of course Zeus can be very Plutonic. You know, he's 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 constantly um, engaging in in sexual conquests and uh, so forth. So Jupiter, uh, it, and this is true of each each of the planets or each of the myths mythic figures associated with the planets is that there are details that are more they're relevant to an unfolding of a particular uh inflection a particular uh mythic and and, and cultural manifestation that goes beyond what the pure archetype is and one of the reasons it's pretty obvious that this would be the case is there's nothing about I mean, the Greeks were an incredible culture. The Romans were an incredible culture in many ways. Both of them had huge shadow uh, qualities as well. But what the Greeks and Romans tuned into in their mythologies don't, doesn't necessarily become the way of understanding all of human experience and all other cultures who have nothing to do with Greek and Roman mythology, yet they share the same planets out there. Um, uh, and presumably the astrological meanings of the planets are not radically different for that culture just because they have a, a, a different mythology. And so what we, uh, and in addition, certainly in the Greco-Roman tradition, they're very patriarchal mythologies and the names of the planets are so, um, you know, overwhelmingly male and yet, I think every good astrologer recognizes that every single uh, uh, planet, including Venus and Mars, has uh, both feminine and masculine express expressions, um, ways of expressing themselves. And same thing with the sun and moon. Uh, it's it's only in a patriarchal, um, patriarchally uh, constructed mode of understanding that one reduces Saturn or Mars or, or Venus or the moon just to a masculine or feminine expression. Uh, and I think there's so many signs right now that in our society that we're kind of breaking out of that um, confining binary of male-female being radically you know, separate from each other and also the patriarchal hierarchy. And instead... Um, the, I think if we can um, recognize um, the archetypes as being these kind of primordial, transcending um, principles, their forces, their gods, their gods' goddesses, their their psychological impulses, uh, their their complexes, their Platonic archetypes, their Jungian archetypes, their Homeric figures. Uh, in 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 myths, but they go across all the different cultures, and each of these kind of pure transcendent archetypal uh, principles that are we can glimpse through our studies of the sun, the moon, Jupiter, Saturn, etc. Each of those um, come can be expressed differently in different mythologies. So you have like 
Pele, the the volcano goddess in Hawaii, is pretty clearly a plutonic uh, uh, being, a plutonic manifestation. In order to understand um, Neptune, you pretty much have to. Well, you can get some understanding of it through Greek uh, mythology. You really have to go to India to get a lot of its meanings. You know, in terms of Maya, in terms of Leela, in terms of Vishnu's uh, dream in terms of the uh, oceanic mystical uh, unity of all things that is so emphasized in the um, Hindu and Buddhist uh, context. Um, so, uh, and there's trickster figures. Uh, that Uranian trickster, that's kind of a creative uh, principle, is in, in so many different cultures. Same thing with the god or goddess of love, of beauty, etc., of war. So these are transcultural um, archetypes. They're both masculine and feminine. They can be understood cosmic in terms as cosmic principles in a more Platonic Pythagorean way, but also as um, interior psychological drives and realities in a more uh, Jungian or and even psychoanalytic or um, uh, Hillmanian way uh, archetypal psychology. So. Uh, I, th I think it's helpful for us to come into, not, not just take the name of a planet that's been given and automatically assume that that, exhausts, that ex exhausts the meaning of that planet, but instead we have to draw from a, an interaction between the name of the planet that has synchronistically been given, the... Um, the, the qualities and features of that mythic being as it's played out in myth, and then look at the period that it's been um, discovered in and get a feeling for what is the cultural zeitgeist that is dominant at that period, which we can talk about now about with Pluto. And then finally, look very, very carefully at, well, what, what do we see when <clears throat> people are born with Pluto uh, on their sun, or Pluto on their moon, or Pluto on their Venus, and how how does that shape their particular sun or moon or Venus or Mercury or whatever it is um, expression? What's particularly distinctive about uh, the expression of love, let's say, under with a Pluto Venus, which we have right now in the sky, uh, uh, the Pluto Venus conjunction as we're speaking here. Um, Mercury's there too, so we're really uh, We've got a and the moon square uh, Pluto as uh, as well, so we've got a, a nice um, a full activation of the of the of the Plutonic archetype there. Yeah, all right up at the midheaven. Yeah, here's the chart for right about when we started with late Taurus rising, and yeah, that triple conjunction of Mercury, Venus, and Pluto in Capricorn uh, today. It's actually the day Jupiter's ingressing into Pisces as well, but. Um, yeah, that was a pretty good chart for we picked for yeah. today. Yeah, and just after Saturn has just moved out of the conjunction to Saturn to to Pluto, it's been you know closer like five ten now and just past the fifteen degree uh, orb of the conjunction to Pluto, and uh, <clears throat> so yeah, we're we we've, we've definitely have even Mars and Pluto are in a tight semi square for for those who pay attention as I do to. Um, uh, the 
um, so-called minor aspects. As Rob Han likes to say, when is a minor aspect not a minor aspect? When it's really tight. <laughs> um, and then it's quite quite major indeed. Right. So should so, we should we talk a little bit about the discovery of Pluto's uh, zeitgeist? That what's going on at that period? Yeah. So um, so so briefly, I wanted to mention so that so the mythology thing as a new interpretive principle complicates things. Um, the meaning of Pluto is also complicated by uh, the debates about astrologers immediately wanted to start figuring out what sign to assign it to because by then there had started to be. Some agreement of assigning Uranus to Aquarius as a new ruler of Aquarius instead of Saturn, and or as a co-ruler in some instances of Aquarius, and then Neptune to the zodiacal sign of Pisces instead of or as a co-ruler in addition to Jupiter. Um, so there started to be debates about assigning it to a sign of the zodiac and different rationales for that, and eventually those who assigned it to Scorpio ended up winning out or becoming the majority. And the tendency to conflate or interchange the meaning of the planets, signs, and houses that increased and became more normalized in 20th century astrology also resulted in drawing some significations from Scorpio in the eighth house and assigning those to Pluto. Um, so that's an additional complicating factor. But why don't we start? One of the things I've done in this series is to try to give it some historical context about how the current meaning of the planet has. Developed is I've looked at some historical sources, and one of the ones that really seems to have influenced the Western and especially the English tradition is uh, Reinhold Eberton and his 1940 book, A Combination of Stellar Influences. Was that a direct or indirect source for you in some ways? It was. It was definitely one of them. I think um, you, you you mean in terms of how I came to understand Pluto. Uh, in charts and transits and and world transits and so forth is is that what you're referring to? Yeah, I mean it seems yeah. like Eberton was a wrote in 1940, and then his text influenced Rob Hand, who wrote Planets in Transit in 1976. And some of Hand's treatment of Pluto ended up seeming kind of seminal in terms of influencing the generation of astrologers that came in in the 60s and 70s. So I thought about maybe reading excerpts from those two really quickly, and then going to to your book. Sure, um, I I would say I think Dane Rudger was was extremely uh, influential as well in those in that early period. Ebertine was was quite remarkable, in, you know, the German astrologer. In kind of, um, it, I think he had a good good intuition of at certain dimensions of Pluto for sure, and particularly reflecting the period that he lived in. I mean, he he. You know, living through Nazi Germany, World War II, et cetera. I mean, he lived through World War One too, uh, as well. But in his mature years, World War Two, and uh, and then Charles Harvey uh, helped in, in the astrology world, helped bring uh, Ebertine into. You know, he helped. He translated um, part of combinations of stellar influence that we use. And Rob Hand certainly was uh, an admirer of Ebertine, uh, but Dane Rudyard. I think he had a, a quite a an an intuitive grasp of many things, and one of them was of of Pluto and recognizing it, this quality of uh, death and rebirth, uh, destruction and regeneration, and seeing it uh, as a at a at a very collective level. He wasn't as in tune with uh, it in, in terms of reading birth charts 
uh, individual charts. He was more, I think, I think he he probably, I'd love to see more, uh, if there's any Rijar scholars out there, I would be very interested in knowing if there's literature or, you know, pri personal things he left behind that give us an indication for where he started getting his first intimations of the meaning of Pluto. But I suspect a lot had to do with his grasp of um, the periods immediately surrounding um, Pluto's discovery in 1930, which I can talk about in a couple of minutes. But let's go along with what you what you had set out there. Sure. So here's the um, excerpt from just the Pluto delineation from Eberton in 1940. So he's like he's writing in 1940s Germany. So that sets a pretty distinct historical context. Um, so he says, "Prince, the principle of Pluto is force majeure or providence, invisible forces or powers, psychological correspondences." Positive ones are the will or the wish to exercise power, the manifestation of un unconscious powers, ruthless frankness or candidness, the urge to influence the masses, propagandist aspirations and objectives, understanding the masses. The negative psychological correspondences are ruthless use of force or, or coercion, inclination to incite, a fanatical zeal to state one's own doctrinal principles, to agitate convulsions and spasms. Biological correspondence he gives is the collective unconscious and regeneration. Sociological correspondence is persons who can be said to exercise a magical influence over the masses, such as propagandist actors, public speakers, and politicians. So, you know, it's like we can recognize some of the later common themes of Pluto in there, and there's also some in there that are different or, or ones that. I don't think you hear repeated as much in in contemporary sources. Yeah, but he does. He's got the he's got the will to power there. He's got the force majeure, which has to do with like when a when a hurricane comes through, an earthquake. That's force majeure. Um, it's it's uh, large impersonal forces. He's also got the sense of the um, the the urge to. To to have power, including through influence, through uh, changing people's minds to, towards leading them in a particular direction, through the exercise of power, propaganda, etc., and he's got a sense of the mass quality too. I think the collective, the mass quality. Uh, that's why during the big the periods when Pluto's activated by one of the outer planets, like Uranus. Uh, Things tend to happen on a more mass level. You have mobs acting in, you know, we have large uh, demonstrations and riots and, uh, and so forth. So um, he's, got, he's got that, a number of those things quite. Ebertine generally ha has a tendency towards, you know, he lived through a very dark period of history and uh, he has a tendency to. At times, to single out the more problematic sides of the archetypes, and this is where I think some of the great depth psychological work that's been done over the last half century, um, particularly by somebody like like uh, Stan Groff, where there is a willingness to enter into that Plutonic domain and become, and you know, basically through going through, you know, kind of whether it's shamanic rituals, uh, sacred medicine. Uh, uh, ceremony, uh, LSD therapy, holotropic breathwork, anything, Kundalini uh, 
yoga, that these where there's a capacity to um, become a vessel of these very powerful energies and um, become come into a more conscious relationship to them and also release release them so they're not um, driving us from the depths without any agency on our part, without any uh, kind of moral uh, consciousness being um, in, informing our expression of it. I think depth psychology has gone a long ways towards becoming friends with Pluto, so to speak. And, and that's why it's so important to do our inner work as astrologers, um, because if we don't, we tend to, you know, either like just be afraid of like Pluto. Oh no, you got too bad. You got a Pluto transit, or you've got a, uh, or you've got this Saturn transit. If you, if if you if you haven't come to terms with um, that archetype in yourself and in your own life, there's a tendency to pass on a a negative view to your client and and a fearful one, et cetera, and that can be. Uh, wounding um, unnecessarily. So I think it's important for us to do our own inner work in relationship to Pluto and perhaps in in particular. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I want to circle back around to psych- the emergence of psychology and depth psychology as well as a possible thing that, that happened and became more prominent, especially after Pluto's discovery. Um, but let's jump forward historically a few decades to 1976 to Rob Robert Hand's seminal book Planets in Transit, um, where he went through and provided delineations for for all major planetary transits, which was kind of a major and novel thing at the time. And since this book came out, uh, what forty almost fifty years ago, it's become the one of those books that I think every astrologer reads at some point and is on every astrologer's shortlist. So as a result of that, I think his formulation of Pluto was really um, important. The way he formulated it. So he says, the significance of transiting Pluto. The nature of Pluto is similar to that of the Hindu god Shiva, the creator and destroyer. Pluto usually begins by breaking down a structure, then it creates a new one in its place. The, this entire cycle of death, destruction, and renovation is accompanied by tremendous powers, for Pluto is not a mild or even very subtle planetary influence. You can always see its effects very clearly, ranging from machines breaking down and needing repair to full-scale destruction or death. Decay at one level or another, followed by new life from the old, is the typical Plutonian process. Characteristically, Plutonian people are those who seek to change, transform, and take control of everything around them. Often a Pluto transit will signify the arrival of a person who transforms your life, either for good or for evil. Or it can symbolize an event or circumstance that has the same effect. Pluto also rules those energies inside of you that lead inexorably to change. It rules the death and regeneration of the self as old aspects of your life pass away and are replaced by new ones that could not otherwise have come into being. Pluto does not signify death in the literal sense, instead it refers to a metaphorical death, something that ceases to be. And it actually goes on, sorry this is kind of long, but worth reading the full passage. Uh, So he goes on and he says, the energies of the planet that Pluto is transiting become a source of change and transformation in your life. You may get involved in serious power struggles with other people and changes in the areas of your life associated with that planet. As Pluto transits your houses, it signifies the areas of your life that are due for radical transformation, 
in the area ruled by the transiting house, structures in your life that have built up to the point that it is no longer possible to patch up whatever is wrong. It is time for a full-scale reconstruction, preceded, if necessary, by destruction of the old change-resistant patterns. It's extremely important that you recognize the inevitability of Platonian change, which is built into the very structure of things and cannot be prevented. And you should not try to prevent it because it is a necessary stage in your evolution. All that you will do is force the energies to build up until they are explosive. Then the inevitable changes will come about disastrously. Not only should you go along with the Plutonian energy of destruction by letting go of whatever must depart, you should also assist in the rebuilding process that follows, for this is the this is the equally inevitable consequence of the Plutonian breakdown. And then finally he says, for reasons that are not entirely understood, Pluto also has to do with secretive and subversive elements of society, revolutionary groups, organized crime, and the like. A Pluto transit may bring such elements into your life, although it is often quite dangerous to allow this during a Pluto transit. So that's kind of his introduction to his whole transit section, and then he goes through and delineates specific transits of Pluto to different planets and different combinations. But there, I think we can see sort of the full establishment pretty close of, of most of the modern take of Pluto for the most part, right? Quite, yeah, it's it's quite quite a bit there. Um, he, I mean, he mentions Shiva, for example, uh, the destroyer, uh, destroyer and creator. Uh, he could also have brought in Kali. You know, again, there's a masculine and feminine, and Kali is the great, you know, goddess of of death and and rebirth, uh, and uh, is a another very potent um, mythic or goddess figure. That expresses Pluto. I should just say, by way of historical accuracy, um, you know, when Rob came out in 1976 with Planets in Transit, it was a uh, with with those kind of detailed delineations. Uh, he did have before him, um, you know, there Francis Sequoyan and Lewis Acker had written full delineations of all the planets uh, and their both natal aspects and transits uh, in a in a couple of books. Actually, they used to be in booklets, individual, the planets, tra transits of the sun, transits of Neptune, transits of Pluto, et cetera. Each one had its own little booklet. And uh, and then later those were combined into a single volume called Predictive Astrology. And then, of course, they had the Astrologer's Handbook. And 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 Rob knew Fra Francis Sequoyan. They, they were both in New England, but she was older and was a teacher there in that area. And then um, he's he's got Evertine behind him. He's also got there's a lot of Dane Ridgar's characterization in in what he's setting out there. Also, uh, Charles Carter and Ed, uh, um, uh, Jones, um, Mark Edmund Jones, are the, the early Mark Edmund Jones from the 1930s and 40s. They wrote a bit about it. But Ridgar, I think, was the one who most was tuning into its depths, and he. Um, so he's recognizing how, in the same way that the 18th century and the discovery of Uranus brought this great period of you know revolution and breakthroughs and liberation and and the uh, um, technological advances and so forth, industrial revolution, the 19th century and the discovery of Neptune coincided with many you know like. Romanticism, transcendentalism, the incoming uh, of of the 
uh, Asian mystical traditions into the West, uh, also the birth of chemistry, and uh, as a as a um, particularly in the industrial um, like pharmaceuticals and anesthetics coming into to being at that point. But the overall the the, the great focus in the mid nineteenth century on compassion, you know, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, the Geneva War Conventions, the Red Cross. Um, the nursing um, profession, uh, ma many uh, forms of the child labor laws, Charles Dickens bringing in uh, such a more empathic, socially compassionate view through his novels. Those are all uh, deep Neptunian uh, phenomena that were coming in at that point. Uh, and when Pluto comes in the in the nineteen thirty. I mean, if you look at the, at the, that's the midpoint of the thirty-year period of the Thirty Years' War, basically that encompassed World War One and World War Two. So, if you look at fifteen years before to fifteen years after, you've basically got both world wars. You've got the coming of the uh, uh, atomic bomb. Um, you've got. I think I I wrote up in Cosmos and Psyche a a little. Um, yeah, here's the passage. If you if you want to go ahead and do the honors of reading it. Oh yeah, sure. So so here's like this is right during that period that we're talking about. Pluto's discovered. You've got the the uh, splitting of the atom, the unleashing of nuclear power, the Titanic uh, technological empowerment of modern industrial civilization and military force, the rise of fascism and other mass movements. Remember, I talked about the that kind of mob energy or mass movements. Uh, uh, the Think of the, about the Nuremberg uh, rallies that um, the Nazis held, just massive. That That's so Plutonic. Yes, there's other things going on there too, Mars, Saturn, etc. But the Plutonic was so visible. Um, the widespread cultural influence of evolutionary theory and psychoanalysis with their focus on the biological instincts, you know, that depth quality, uh, what's below the surface of the uh, veneer of civilization. What's below is the Plutonic, which is also the underworld, which getting back to Rob Hand's point, um, he says it's not quite understood why this has to do with the criminal underworld and things like that. But Pluto's the underworld. So it's the criminal underworld, it's the sexual underworld, the urban underworld, the psychological underworld, and the mythic underworld. Um, but getting back to my description from Cosmos and Psyche, uh, increased sexual and erotic expression in social mores and the arts. So the Plutonic is all this, all the instincts. It's ag aggression. It's uh, survival instincts. It's reproductive instincts, sexual uh, energies, um, destructive energies. Uh, intensified activity and public awareness of the criminal underworld. Think about the '30s with all the all the. Um, uh, criminal, uh, the gangster movies that became very uh, prominent at that point. Tangible intensification of instinctually driven mass violence and catastrophic historical developments evident in the world wars, the Holocaust, the threat of nuclear annihilation and ecological devastation. And and here, if you take the broad view as Rujar did, that it's a 20th century phenomenon surrounding the discovery of Pluto. Here also can be mentioned the intensified politicization and power struggles characteristic of 20th century life. 
the development of powerful forms of depth psychological transformation and catharsis, and the scientific recognition of the entire cosmos as a vast evolutionary phenomenon from the primordial fireball to the still evolving present. So in, in many ways, even the um, even our view of the cosmos is it's right then in the like just a couple of years before Pluto's discovered that the uh, that astronomers, particularly through the the, the work of um, Harlow Shapley and um, the and Hubble, uh, and they're they're recognizing that the um, that the cosmos is expanding and is huge as many galaxies and is evolving. Um, it's a whole different view that comes in compared to the more static Newtonian universe that the scientific revolution had established, much more Plutonic. So um, I, I think I, I may have also, um, yeah, so those are the correlations with the, that I think Rudyard's picking up on and, and then they get played out. But Rob Hand and and Sequoia and Acker and Ebertine, they're able, to, they're starting to differentiate like Pluto with the sun, Pluto with moon, Pluto with the different planets, Pluto with different signs and houses, and uh, those are very important advances in our understanding of Pluto. Right. So that brings us eventually, and we'll circle back to some of the things that occurred around the time of the discovery. But I just wanted to provide some context before we go into discussing those in detail. Um, your next passage, which is when you summarized basically the significations of Pluto very broadly about what the archetype of, of Pluto is. Uh, do you feel like reading this passage? So Pluto is associated with the principle of elemental power, depth, and intensity, with that which compels, empowers, and intensifies whatever it touches, sometimes to overwhelming and catastrophic extremes. It's associated with the primordial instincts libidinal and aggressive, destructive and regenerative, volcanic and cathartic, eliminative, transformative, ever-evolving, with the biological processes of birth, sex, and death, the cycle of death and rebirth. Let me just take a, a, a bracket here. We, we think of Saturn as related to death and the endings of things. Well, Pluto is death and rebirth. It's got the whole cycle in it. And and in fact, it goes birth, sex, and death, and rebirth. It's the whole big Ouroboros cycle of, of, of life and death. Getting back to the description here from Cosmos and Psyche, uh, it's associated with upheaval, breakdown, decay, and fertilization, violent purgatorial discharge of pent-up energies, purifying fire, this is what Stan Groff calls pyrocatharsis, that part of a very powerful um, experiential therapy where you go through pyrocatharsis, where there's a great release in a kind of fiery burst from the depths that releases the, the repressed energies from one in a way that is not destructive, but actually puts you in touch with the life force and is healing. Uh, situations of life and death extremes, power struggles, all that is titanic, potent, and massive. Pluto represents the underworld and underground in all senses, elemental, geological, like in an earthquake, instinctual, political, social, sexual, urban, criminal, mythological, 
demonic. It is the dark, mysterious, taboo, and often terrifying reality that lurks beneath the surface of things, beneath the ego, societal conventions, and the veneer of civilization, beneath the surface of the earth, that is periodically unleashed with destructive and transformative force. Pluto impels, burns, consumes, transfigures, resurrects. In mythic and religious terms, it is associated with all myths of descent and transformation, and with all deities of destruction and regeneration, death and rebirth, Dionysus, Hades, and Persephone, Pan, Medusa, Lilith, Inanna, Isis and Osiris, the volcano goddess Pele, Quetzalcoatl, the serpent power, Kundalini, Shiva, Kali, Shakti. So the, these are, um, I think, I think it was quite helpful when Rob Hand made the connection to to uh, Shiva with with Pluto, and in doing so, it helps us recognize that these, you know, goes to many different cultural mythologies and also feminine, uh, not just masculine, that we sh we sh we should include, and in certain ways, certain aspects elements of the Pluto archetype are have a have a particularly feminine quality the goddess uh, that is the goddess if you have birth you have a goddess present you have a birth you have a mother energy is what makes birth possible and that also also involves the kind of elemental energies of the birth process as any mother who's given birth could say it's just these are Titanic energies that take over the body to bring bring forth the 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 infant from the womb out into the world. Let me just tell you one thing about Rob. When I, I invited Rob to come to uh, Esalen Institute back in the seventies, right after um, uh, Planets in Transit came out, because uh, I was director of programs there, and both Stan Groff and I were, you know, when we saw Rob's book come out. Up until that point, you know, we'd been using more Abertine and Sequoian and Acker's um, work. And so Rob, uh, along with like Liz Green and Stephen Arroyo about the same time were coming out with their, with their works. But Rob's systematic work was quite something. And, you know, he had Neptune, the whole time he wrote that book, he was like, he told me he was in a kind of almost like hypnotic state of uh, almost like channeling. He could hardly remember in retrospect consciously writing it. Neptune was transiting his sun Venus Mercury conjunction. He had so Neptune was conjoined sun Venus and Mercury, which in his case opposes both his Uranus and Saturn. So he's got a Uranus Saturn conjunction born 1942 opposite sun and Mercury and Venus. Yeah, you see it there with the um yeah, here's his chart. So he has sun at 13 Sagittarius, Mercury at 15, and Venus at 17 Sagittarius. And in the mid to late 70s, Neptune was tra transiting right through all of those points in Sagittarius. Yeah. So he was basically in this kind of trance. He, he would come when he came to Esalen, uh, I had him come a number of times. So it was great to have him. And he'd sit there in the living room in a, a kind of Buddha pose. You know, he'd put his, um, uh, he'd put his, um, legs into a lotus position because we all were on cushions in those days. There were no chairs uh, in the meeting rooms at Esalen. 
and uh, it was in the big house living room and he would just go he would almost in a kind of trance state be be talking about what each of the planets meant what each of the houses each of the signs etc but i remember he was particularly because stan groff and i were doing all this work with um you know the death rebirth process uh, lsd therapy um and powerful forms of experiential therapy there at Esalen. He uh, he called us the Jupiter Pluto Club. But what was particularly f- f- uh, because both Stan and I had that, but he um, quite uh, memorably described the process of <clears throat> trans, you know, kind of ego death and transformation in terms of moving in his discussion of when he would describe each of the planets starting. Uh, from the um, sun and moon moving uh, out through like what Mercury's role and Venus's role, Mars's role in the psychological development of the individual, which is what he was particularly uh, focused on. And then when he got to, you know, like Saturn's the reality principle, it's also the ego structure that we kind of define our identity according to. And he said, but then when you get to the transpersonal planets, uh, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, um, that challenges the ego structure and the reality structure of your life. And the way he put it was Uranus breaks that, it's shattered, it comes in and uh, kind of disrupts it, breaks breaks it like a breaking the ice, so to speak. And then Neptune dissolves it, and then Pluto comes in for the kill. Uh, that's how he memorably put it. Uh, describing you know people have gone through powerful death rebirth experiences you know well stan groff has a great description of it in one of his books where you know for there's this just when the plutonic energy fully comes in and you know first you're working through all the the um in pyrocatharsis and the fiery energies the uh, titanic uh destructive powers coming through one and the the the, the sexual the you know, orgiastic the aggressive then demonic energies can come through and um scatological etc it's a real journey through the underworld but then there's this um he said the last stages involve a kind of annihilation and he said uh, uh many people experience she he said first colleague comes in and um requires total surrender to the feminine principle uh, in, in all her power and and terrifying quality. And then with that surrender, he then said, and then Shiva comes in uh, and just um, completely destroy, does the final destruction, like, you know, destroying the ego, what's left. And he said, then at that moment, you know, there's this kind of opening up to uh, the the incredible grandeur of the um, cosmic um, pantheon of, of gods and goddesses as far as you can see and, and kind of the the golden light of uh, spiritual healing that just can kind of pour in at that moment and uh, go on and on from, from there. It, when I had a, an experience along that line, that was actually when astrology deeply came in through that kind of golden white light like coming in through the top of my head and uh, many other insights, biographical, psychological, and so forth. But the recognition of how suddenly, how the 
planetary archetypes, how they worked, how they were expressing themselves in our lives, the power of transits, the significance of the birth chart and one's own birth, and uh, as well as facing death, all those things were kind of coming in at that time. So this deep uh, inner journeying that you know so many people are are engaging now is so helpful in breaking out of the constricted worldview in which you think that you live in a kind of random materialistic uh, universe with astrology as the uh, gold standard of superstition, as I like to call it, and instead suddenly realizing that you live in uh, an ensouled cosmos of incredible uh, depth and moral and aesthetic majesty, and that we're participating in a great mystery that's unfolding through us. So, and Pluto plays a big role in that. So that's why Pluto can go from being solely seen as this, you know, terrifying, you know, will to power or uh, uh, some something that's just purely uh, destructive, and to really grasp its transformational and redemptive quality. Uh, but it's it is. Uh, a dangerous principle. It's almost like the principle of danger. Uh, so it takes, this is where, you know, guidance, mentors, um, teachers, uh, wise elders, therapists, uh, healers, shamans are so important um, to help navigate that guide, uh, navigate uh, in a guiding way that that deep descent into the underworld. So people like like Jung, for example, uh, has a lot of wisdom on this. Stan Groff has a lot of wisdom on it. Tolkien's had uh, Gandalf playing that role for Frodo uh, and and in engaging a, a life that he um, Frodo wished that he hadn't been born to deal with such a, a fraught time as he was born into and. Uh, my daughter uh, Becca, who's a Tolkien scholar, kind of particularly called to my attention that beautiful passage where, uh, when Frodo says, "I wish I wasn't born at such a time," and and Gandalf says, "Like I'm paraphrasing," Gandalf says, "None of us wish to be born at such a time, but it, what's it's what we do with when we find ourselves in such a time. Then it's how we respond to it. It's what we do to it. Uh, do." In this mo mo in this uh, circumstance that is where it's all at, that's where we that's where we become uh, a a soul. That's where we become an identity. Uh, that's where we. Um, this is where you kind of have to be true to the hero in your own soul, even at the very moment that you're you're going uh, into the depths and feeling your identity being devastated, that's part of the heroism of that transformational journey. So anyway, we have guides, we have elders um, that are very uh, important for dealing with these extremely powerful energies, which probably are as activated now on a global level as, as ever, because we both have the rise of authoritarianism and violent, you know, populism, uh, 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 massive um, power struggles in the world in quite destructive ways. 
very similar to the period when Pluto was discovered in the 30s. Yeah, let's let's actually dwell on that point because that's something I've been thinking about a lot recently with um, the United States experiencing its first exact Pluto return this year with three exact hits, but certainly it's been pretty close to that for for several years now as Pluto's been moving through the later stages of Capricorn. Um, but one of the things that really always sticks out to me when we think of that principle of you know the astrologers have been using for a while now that that when a new planetary body is discovered, that some of the events happening in the world at that time that are defining world events will give you some insight into the nature of that planet. And discovering Pluto in 1930 and just what was happening in the world in the 1930s, one of the things that always you know jumps out is the rise of fascism. Uh, not just in in Europe, which had been building up for for a little while up to that point, the sort of explosion of it in Europe, but also how that kind of got exported to different parts of the world, where where fascism started being imitated in in different countries. And maybe if you could, I don't know, explain that point or or what that means to people a little bit, because I think this is often mentioned as a a, a note in passing, like an obvious thing, but it's really only to historians or people that study the period that that becomes a really striking point uh, and the striking point uh, I mean, being just in the sense of um how do you define this, fascism and what was unique yeah. about the emergence of fascism in the 1930s in its relationship to pluto or what can that tell us about pluto right yeah that uh activation of 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 mass um will to power, people identifying with a collective, uh, suppressing their individuality, and even the, the, the so-called you know, leader, Fuhrer, the strong man, the dictator, whether it was Mussolini or Hitler or Stalin, um, the psycho-historian Lloyd DeMoss and, and Stan Groff often use the phrase that, you know, the the strongman dictator tyrant who's leading this fascist movement, they're they're not really. If if you do deep, if underneath there's uh, there's such um, they're a small person in certain ways with kind of a titanic compensatory uh, persona. And uh, he said, really, what what makes them so powerful is the fact that they are. Um, they're channels of the collective id. They're, they are, and this is the term that both <clears throat> Lloyd DeMouse and uh, Stan Groff use is that they're they're garbage collectors of the of the collective psyche. You know, they they of the shadow that is uh, er, erupting. I mean, America, the United States, has just had uh, just went through a four year period, um, really kind of more like five years, where. Um, it's almost as if the soul of America, like Persephone, got swallowed by the by by Hades, you know, by the underworld, uh, and we suddenly found ourselves in a in a kind of um, a, a world in which a kind of, kind of violent, massive, titanic, uh, and and often uh, criminal will to power was at work, and um, the people representing it uh, or forwarding it. Often they they almost represented the the shadow version of every like the shadow version of the un American or the shadow version of what it would be to be male or shadow version of wealth or the shadow version of whiteness and so forth. 
um, and the, the United States birth chart at that point was being transited um, 2016, you know, you got Pluto was opposite the sun. And then now Pluto's uh, returning now and, and has been, I mean, the Pluto return, like a Saturn return, is a big, long transit. It doesn't just activate, you know, the year that it's exact. Uh, this is the end of a of an enormous 248 year cycle, and even as it gets to within you know 10 15 degrees before exact, uh, it's it's cooking um, uh, much as a Saturn return does uh, in a personal chart. Saturn return doesn't just happen when you're 29 and a half. It you know from 28 to 30 you can pretty much depend from your 28th birthday to your 31st birthday those three years are going to be pretty characteristic of a Saturn return. And the Pluto return um, has been approached here. You can see how tight it is right now, just like one degree from exact. And uh, prior to that, like back um, like five years ago, Pluto was opposite sun. And and you you often get the, uh, the, the, the Pluto opposite, uh, sun energy when you are uh, like a, a very powerful solar individual uh, with plutonic qualities will kind of massively influence the, in this case, the United States, which is the, uh, whose birth chart we're, we're looking at that where Pluto's transiting it. And of course, that's when Trump became uh, came down the escalator and started his uh, his ascent to power, and um, and now we're deeply in the in the Pluto return, which which suggests I mean this isn't just a Trumpian phenomenon; it's a it's an, an American phenomenon. Just think about the degree to which the United States has during these last few years really been entering into the underworld of its own shadow, like facing. This is how racist we've been and not not owning it not recognizing it. this is how we've treated native americans since be, you know the beginning the 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 great expansion of the west the uh, manifest destiny and so forth. this is look at it from the other side of the people that were here how does that look um how emancipatory is the the I, is the american experiment for um african americans uh blacks who who you know, fought in, in in a world war, and then come back to lynchings and and disenfranchisement, and not being able to make a living, and not being a, allowed to live in uh, uh, many neighborhoods, and so forth. Uh, it's just um, the shadow side. The Plut Pluto is um, having to be faced at many different levels. The facing of the shadow is an extremely important part of a spiritual growth and of a psychological transformation, and we're having to do it right now. But part of a Pluto return of any powerful Pluto transit is a kind of going through a destruction, going through a loss, a transformation, a, a kind of uh, purgation of of uh, of the detritus of the. Um, the refuse, the 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 uh, suppressed um, shadowy parts of ourselves that we don't want to look at, it has to be brought to the surface and then released. But it has to come to the 
to consciousness before it can be released. That's why this time, as painful as it is, is so important for uh, the potential of a rebirth of, of the United States, which has a noble side. Somebody like Martin Luther King deeply, deeply believed in um, an American uh, ideal um, that hadn't been fulfilled. And he's drawing on the on on, on Lincoln uh, before him, and on uh, Frederick Douglass, and so forth, and Sojourner Truth, and uh, Harriet Tubman. There, there's a. It, these are potentials within the uh, American brave experiment that can only be realized through going through this plutonic crucible of death and rebirth, this plutonic underworld of transformation. And that's how rebirth can take place. You have to go through the deep night sea, sea journey. You have to, you have to um, risk everything. You have to experience yourself um, burning to ashes before you can uh, be um, revivified through the mysterious grace of, of the life process. This is why the Greeks recognize, I think, quite accurately that Pluto, Hades, uh, were uh, an, another name for, were, were also united with Dionysus, that Dionysus, Pluto, and Hades were three names for the same god. Heraclitus said this, uh, the, the, the great Greek philosopher, but also Euripides, the playwright, and um, this points out how life and death, dying and rebirth are curiously interlinked because Dionysus is so much the god of life, even as he is the one who goes through dismemberment. And Pluto, Hades, the god of the underworld and the, and the being of the underworld itself, they are also um, uh, deeply tied to the giving of life, even as they are what swallow us in death. And these are in turn conveyed so powerfully in the Indian um, renderings of, of the Plutonic uh, principle in, in uh, Kali, in Shiva, in the Kundalini serpent uh, energy, and, um, and in uh, the Shakti energy. So I think we, we, we have resources. The question is whether, uh, and we have wisdom traditions, and we have um, ritual uh, means by which that are available to us to go through these, you know, wilderness uh, vision quests and so forth. We have so many, uh, so many people are carrying keys to our transformation, but um, we need to have the collective wake wake up to these enough, and it's quite possible that the. Pluto return that the U.S. is going through, and the very powerful Pluto transits that we've been going through, generally world transits, Uranus square Pluto, the Saturn conjunct Pluto. Now we're just starting to move into the trine of Uranus to Pluto for later into the 20s, uh, quite promising. Uh, there's a real possibility, I think, with this great intensification of Plutonic energy that um, we will be obliged as a civilization, as a species, um, 
to undergo the the dying uh, in order to realize ourselves. Goethe, Goethe said, um, until you know this um, deep secret, die and become, you will be a stranger on this dark earth. And in some ways, modern civilization has been a stranger on this dark earth. It, is, it has been separated from, alienated from nature as if that was something to conquer and control, exploit, understand in order to um, use its resources. Uh, and in doing so, um, it has, it's like it's suppressed the Plutonic nature, which was not invited to the birthday party, as it were, and it, it becomes the it becomes the the being who comes back with a vengeance, uh, which we're experiencing with global climate change and many other uh, expressions of it, the the return of the repressed, and um, the only way we will wake up to the um, full uh, beauty and power uh, of the. Uh, of the earth community that we belong to and its richness and realizing that our our species is and our civilization are are a part of something much bigger that we're participating in the only way we'll wake up out of our strangerhood to the dark earth is through uh, dying and then becoming then then actualizing our our deeper roots in 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 the earth and in the cosmos and not a random, mechanistic, materialistic, meaningless cosmos, but an ensouled one of great intelligence and great spiritual mystery. So that's kind of how I see the mystery of Pluto, whether it's in birth charts or in personal transits or in world transits or what we're talking about as well, the Pluto return for the United States, which plays such a crucial ro role in world history. At this point, the, the American experiment is still looked to as an important one by people around the world, even as we have uh, gone through such failures uh, morally and so forth. I think um, the this is the essence of what I think Pluto is uh, asking us to um, be aware of, to be able to live a more skillful, compassionate, participatory life in the in the in the in the in the life of the of the of the Earth and the cosmos. Right. So perhaps one of the main core significations of Pluto or that seems to come with Pluto transits is the dredging up of the darker parts of one's history and then the subsequent struggle to confront and, and recognize them and deal with them in some way. And that's right. That can happen either collectively in the instance that you're talking about or or personally in some instances. And that's one of the interesting things about the emergence of depth psychology in the 20th century that might be very much relevant to to Pluto as well. Yeah, um, I think uh, whenever you have a depth dimension, deep is a Pluto word, um, and uh, you know, like Jupiter, Uranus, they want they're high, they're they they move towards the heights. Um, even Neptune, with its uh, emphasis towards you know the the celestial, the heavenly, um, the has that impulse towards the above, up and out, uh, 
each of those in their own way. But Pluto is into depth, and depth psychology was born um, with in the late 19th century. I think Nietzsche was probably the, in many ways, the key figure. Uh, he he's born with Pluto opposite the Sun. He's probably if you if if one wants to get a sense for Pluto and in in eloquent philosophical uh, expression. Friedrich Nietzsche, read, read, read the spoke Zarathustra, and one really can get the, the sense of it. Um, he even signed his last letters, uh, Dionysus, um, and and he, and you know, some of his key phrases were, yeah, see that sun opposite Pluto could hardly yeah. be more more vivid. He so was for the audio listeners. His sun is at twenty two seven Libra, and his Pluto is at twenty two fifty seven Aries. So it's a very close opposition. Yeah, I have a whole section on Nietzsche in um, the later in Cosmos and Psyche, where I kind of go over a number of his uh, major alignments, uh, including that Sun Pluto, and you know he so much of his um, key uh, ideas of like he. To the discerning person, all instincts are holy. That's one. Or he has another one. What is the secret of living a fruitful life? Live dangerously. Build your, build your homes on the side of Vesuvius. Send your ships out onto uncharted seas. Live at war with yourselves and with your equals. No, with your equals and with yourselves. That's, um, that is the secret of living a fruitful life. You can just hear as Pluto, even the Pluto opposite Sun at war with yourself too. He was into transcending the self in order to come into the greater um, uh, power, uh, the redemptive power. He has another passage: "Behold, I am that which must overcome itself again and again." He was saying, "Nature told me this this deep secret. Behold, I am that which must overcome itself uh, again and again." Or he has another beautiful passage where he says, one must have chaos inside oneself in order to give birth to a star. Well, the star is the sun, right? That's our star, the, uh, the sun. And the sun is the symbol of our, own, uh, of our own central principle of selfhood. And it's the, it's the hero archetype, the solar hero, um, who can get caught in an immature form of just being, you know, the John Wayne hero or something like that. But there's a deep hero that is that goes through the descent that becomes a servant of the whole uh, in the great in a great uh, sacrifice. That's true heroism. And um, so when he says one must have chaos inside oneself, that's Pluto, inside oneself, the sun, in order to give birth to the star and to a star, that's that's the solar, like then you become, another one of his phrases, become what thou art, become what thou art. Uh, so he, there's many ways in, in which he, he was carrying that Pluto sun, uh, that Plutonic energy, and then he serves as a kind of guide or mm, uh, precursor of the whole depth psychology project that is carried forward by Freud, by Jung, by uh, Melanie Klein, by uh, uh, Marie-Louise von Franz, uh, by uh, so, so many so many important um, depth psychologists, James Hillman. I think uh, Stan Gross' work becomes especially 
potent synthesis of, of the Freudian, the Jungian, the spiritual, the, the instinctual. Uh, and it partly is because he was working with the power of, of um, you know, LSD and, and the, the sacred vision plants, psilocybin, mushrooms, peyote, mescaline, um, and, and so forth. So uh, their depth psychology, you know, Jung once said, we have not uh, yet recognized the extent to which the discovery of the unconscious is a critical spiritual discovery, which we must, um, which which we must uh, integrate in order to preserve our civilization. I would say in order to transform us and preserve our, our civilization, which I'm sure he meant too. Uh, the discovery of the unconscious, yeah, there's there's Jung. Look at that Moon Pluto conjunction near the near the um, base of his chart. Yeah, that's really close, right there next to the IC at 29 Taurus, and Pluto's at 23 Taurus, and the Moon is at 15, and then both are squaring Saturn, which is at 24 Aquarius. That's right, and the and the Moon is tight square Uranus as well. So he's uh, he. He has such a powerful anima. He uh, Jung does. The moon is so potent. All three outer planets are in some relationship. The one degree square to Uranus, the the tight conjunction um, to to Pluto, about eight degrees, and um, and then the Plu the moon is right in between Neptune and Pluto in the sky when he's born. So his whole childhood is carrying those intensified Neptunian energies of visions, dreams. Uh, Etc. From the underworld, and then he, um, his understanding of the anima and why our civilization, and particularly men, need to you know kind of come into re-engagement with what he called the feminine. But it's it's the lunar principle which has both masculine and feminine qualities. But his anima had all three of the transpersonal planets aspecting his moon, and so. He has a uh, a great sentence in one of his letters where he said, "The apprentice piece of psychological development is the encounter with the shadow. The masterpiece is the encounter with the anima." Now, I he's talking about male psychology at that point, but because our civilization has been so patri patriarchal, in many ways, he's talk. You can apply this to the. To the collective psych psychology and the great gift that depth psychology provides for the collective, uh, for our civilization, if it's willing to do this deep work. And that is um, if first we have to face the shadow, the things that we don't want to see, uh, and you know, all the whole shadow side of Western civilization, of modern civilization, of uh, all the things we've been talking about. The ecological uh, devastation, the effect on other species, the patriarchal, um, uh, Eurocentric—all the ways in which um, tremendous suffering has been caused by a, what is also a dynamic and no noble civilization and species. Uh, we we contain both, and. Um, if we can first face the shadow, as he called it, the apprentice piece, and in integrate that, he said, then we can enter into the bigger task, 
which is to come into relationship to the anima, which is the whole of life, which is the soul of life, which is um, the anima mundi, the soul of the world, anima mundi, the soul of the world. This is what's been repressed. Uh, this is James Hillman's great point in his, in his uh, powerful paper called Anima Mundi, The Return of the Soul to the World. Um, it's in a book called The Thought of the Heart and the Soul of the World. And um, the, the suppression of the idea that the whole world is ensouled, not just human beings, that suppression has allowed a kind of um, destructive alienation on the part of the modern mind whereby it tried to basically objectify the entire universe and all the earth and all the other species and even other human beings very, very uh, morally horrific side of our civilization. We, because of, of that view of an objectified universe in which we are the only subjects, and particularly a certain type of subject, namely the uh, Western modern civilization, that uh, has to be, the only, we have to lose, in a sense, have that identity uh, overcome, destroyed, in order to wake up to the fact that we live in a living universe that is imbued with profound spiritual mystery and intelligence and soul. Uh, and we're going through a kind of plutonic uh, transformational crucible right now that's giving us both the opportunity but also the necessity of doing that transformation because everything's at stake now in a way that wasn't as visible in the 1970s when uh, Rob Hand was writing about Pluto as Shiva and, and planets in transit. It wasn't, wasn't as uh, visible in the 60s. It's very visible now, and it's probably going to get more, more visible. And I think, um, fortunately, there are more and more people in the world who are waking up to the nature of our, our situation and are um, tuning into the great uh, gifts that depth psychology, um, indigenous wisdom traditions, uh, sacred medicine uh, journeys, um, social and ecological justice movements, and so forth. What all these provide for us in terms of uh, a, a potential radical transformation. There's there's a more and more people on board for this great kind of heroic quest of our time, but it's. Uh, it could hardly be more uh, a dramatic period than we are in. Right. I was just um, <clears throat> looking at the charts, and I pulled up. You were talking about Jung's chart and his Moon Pluto conjunction in in mid Taurus, and it made me want to pull up Freud's chart, who interestingly has a Sun. It's a little wide, but a Sun Pluto conjunction in mid Taurus, and also Venus Pluto conjunction. Yeah, Venus Pluto with his focus on the uh, see the Venus Pluto right at his descendant. Uh, and what's his whole focus is on you know the pleasure principle, Venus Pluto, and on um, the importance of uh, sexual energy as as you know he became a kind of he had a, made it into a mono explanation the advantage of uh, 
Jung's work and Gross' work is that they expanded our understanding of the, of the Plutonic. So that it's it is the sexual, but it's more than the sexual. It's the elemental, the instinctual. It's the uh, regenerative. It's the it's, it, there's a sacred dimension to it. But um, yeah, look at that. He's got a Pluto dominated chart in many ways. It's right uh, with. He's basically born with the sun in between Uranus and Pluto, and um, uh, Jung's born with the sun tight square to Neptune and the moon in between Neptune and Pluto. So uh, it's interesting seeing their sun moon sinistry. And I, it's funny, Jung, Jung, of course, would have remarked on that. And I can't help but thinking of like his synchronicity experiment where he was comparing. Sun Moon people in relationships as a sinistry marriage and marriages, yeah, that must have been like in the back of his mind somewhere. I I wouldn't be surprised that because even though he didn't, uh, you know, I mean, he didn't work with Pluto at all, for example, but he definitely was working with Sun and Moon and uh, the um, planets out through Saturn and in later years with Uranus as well. Uh, but he, um, you know, in many ways, he was. Freud looked at Jung as being his his son, um, and his crown, the crown prince of psychoanalysis, is how uh, uh, Freud described Jung with his son. And so, Freud's got son conjunct Jung's moon, and um, Freud has a son son Uranus conjunction. Um, Let's see. Uh, Freud's got the Sun-Uranus conjunction, and it's conjoining Jung's Moon, which is square Uranus. So they each have a kind of one's kind of a Promethean principle of the solar. Uh, uh, Freud, the focus on the heroic conquistador. <coughs> excuse me. Well, um, Jung, uh, with uh, having his moon right there on the sun Uranus of Freud's in the outer chart. And Jung's moon is tight square to Uranus. So he's got that, you know, his followers tended to be women. Um, and they, uh, he, was, he was focused on the importance of the liberation of the anima and the integration of the anima and the feminine side of life uh, uh, in order to become whole uh, and not suppressing it uh, the way patriarchy does. And uh, while well, Jung was more, and 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 uh, Jung was also more focused on the mother mother goddess, on on uh, Sophia, on the Virgin Mary, on the great mother uh, archetypes, Magna Mater, etc. While Freud was focused much more on solar deities, um, Oedipus, uh, um, and on uh, dealing with Yahweh and and and. God the Father and in his Moses and monotheism, etc. And he was more interested on liberating the egoic hero from the clutches, the power of the Plutonic, um, while Jung was more on integrating the the lunar side of life uh, as a um, as the the way to get in contact with our soul again for redemptive uh, transformational purposes. And what's interesting is it's right when transiting Saturn transited across Jung's and uh, Freud's Sun-Moon conjunction. That's what I was just looking at. That that's it's during that transit that they they went through their big break. 
that they had a falling out. So that because they have, I mean, with that sinistry, they have kind of a platonic sinistry there. One of the things with Pluto is as a tendency to go to extremes. So earlier talking about Freud, you know, treating Jung like the the golden child that would you know take psychology forward or or what have you, but. That's one of the typical things of Platonic sinistry is is sometimes the extreme of it, it can be extremely positive, but when it goes negative, it can go the opposite extreme and be extremely negative and and have a very painful sort of falling out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it was nineteen ten, nineteen eleven when they had their falling out. Yes, I mean it was a, it, it it had in it, it went through a series of stages. Even nineteen oh nine, it was starting to occur, but ten and eleven was was very quite quite decisive. And um, I write about it in Prometheus: The Awakener, uh, that little monograph I I wrote back in the in the late seventies. Um, so. Yeah, in fact, there, then there's a whole. If if you look at in the years after that, with Jung's transits, um, just unbe- unbelievable transits he went through as he went through the whole period, the descent into his unconscious that brought forth the the Red Book and really his entire life's work is that basically Neptune, as you can see, and Uranus were basically moving right across his his. Um, yeah, there. If you you can see Neptune right on his sun there in 1916, but prior to that, if you go back to like 1914, you can see Uranus. Uh, go go back to 1913, actually, when it started. Uranus is opposing his sun, uh, and and then as the years go by, it it opposes his uh, Uranus squares moon, and so that period from like 1913 to 1917 or 18. Um, is a period when he just went through such a uh, you know all, all the as he put it all the images that became the uh, that flooded into his visions and his dreams at that time and even kind of destabilized his sense of s- centered sanity and of I- identity. Um, so much hap- it was so powerful that that became the prima materia, uh, the prime matter of the, his whole, whole life's work. All right, we're going to jump through because there's a bunch of points we wanted to get through in the rest of this. So we'll kind of do this a little bit more rapidly. Um, something an astrologer friend of mine said that always stuck with me that I thought was a good interpretive principle for Pluto. And I think it's consistent with one of the things that you're saying. The astrologer Alan White, who passed away about a decade ago, he was involved in Project Hindsight. But something he always said was that Pluto makes small things big and big things small. And I think this is connected with this thing of um, the signification of kind of magnifying things or taking things to extreme or pushing them beyond their normal limits that is sometimes associated with Pluto. Um, what, what do you think about that? Very true. Yeah. It, it, uh, it magnifies things, it, it intensifies them, um, it, it gives titanic energy to it. For example, Sometimes, back when after the the first three outer planets were discovered, uh, there was a, a typical comparison that Uranus was the upper octave of Mercury, and Neptune was the was the higher octave of Venus. You know, like universal divine love compared with you know hu- human love, or you know Mercury as the mind and um, 
Uranus as the cosmic mind, you know, just <clears throat> Mercury's everyday mathematics and Uranus's Einsteinian you know, relativity theory or something like that. And then with Pluto, it would, it would be Mars is the Mars uh, and Pluto. Pluto's the uh, the higher octave of, of Mars, or one might say deeper octave. But in this case, if Mars is like a fist fight, Pluto's like a, a, an earthquake. Um, it's just like I don't know, you know, it's, or it's a world war. It's like much bigger, or even just a war. That's plutonic, and um, so it, it greatly inten intensifies uh, whatever whatever f uh, phenomenon that it is coming into relationship to. Now, what's interesting is Ellen White's two sides to that, because you you can see how that would make a small thing big. Um, the mouse into the elephant with the, but uh, or the technological empowerment that can happen with in uh, the, the Titanic empowerment, super muscled, but the making the larger smaller. I was thinking about that, <clears throat> and I have a feeling what he's getting at is the. Uh, the ego death part of it, the death and you know, it 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 undercuts anything that's anything that's inflated uh is is ultimately going to get get destroyed. Um and so it serves as a kind of compensatory principle. If it's it it, it makes larger and it can make smaller depending on uh what where you are in the journey. Yeah. One of the um Tangible examples of the first part that he always used was the um, the atom bomb and the development of the atom bomb, where you're taking something extremely small, an atom, and then breaking it open, and then causing this huge explosion. That's you know there had been explosions up to that point, which might have been like you know Mars principle of like you know dynamite or TNT or something like that. But this was magnified uh, far beyond anything anybody had previously imagined and taken to the utmost extreme. And did he say anything about what he meant the other way around about making the large small? Um, I, I'm trying to remember, but one of his things I think was technology and just how technology kept miniaturizing things, like you know, um, huge computer-sized uh, computer the size of a house, like in one decade, suddenly becomes you know fitting in your in your mobile phone the following decade or what have you. Um, yeah, I think that was part of it. In in terms of that, I thought it was interesting. Apparently, in doing research for this episode, um, the element plutonium was actually named after the planet Pluto in 1941, following a convention where Uranian and Neptunian were also previously named after planets when they were discovered previously. Um, but interestingly, in terms of the significations of Pluto, um, even though it was discovered, plutonium was discovered in 1941 and named. They didn't. The, the wartime secrecy prevented them from announcing it or publishing about the discovery until 1948, several years later. Yeah, I don't know uh, what they had in mind with the with the connection between those three elements and three planets, but. Um... Yeah, but just uh, I don't know. In practical terms, I think both of the bombs that ended up being dropped. In World War II, ended up having plutonium cores. Um, so there's some interesting things there. And just going back to other significations and other core things, we mentioned the intensification of anything that it touches and, and being taken to 
the utmost extreme. So sometimes that, when combined with other planets, is really where that comes out. So for example, combined with Venus and taking um, elements of having to do with like relationships to their utmost extreme, which on the one hand could be a positive manifestation of going to the utmost extreme for, for love or what have you, and then on the other hand it could be a negative side of that of going too far or being too obsessed or not letting go of, of somebody um, even when it becomes inappropriate or what have you. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, I one of the ways in which I uh, in my my courses at um, CIS California Institute of Integral Studies, where I've taught uh, for these last uh, better part of three decades, I I've taught a lot of courses that are called archetypes, art, and culture, where I will use um, works of art, music, film, poetry, etc., to um, demonstrate uh, the the nature of a particular archetype or archetypal combination between, say, two planets by by having the students. Uh, we all listen to a particular song, or we we see a film. So, for example, um, with the Venus Pluto that, that we're just talking about, I I would typically, among other things, I would play something like um, Janis Joplin. Who was born with Venus opposite Pluto, Venus and Sun and Mercury in her case all opposite Pluto. But that Venus opposite Pluto and what's her like her signature song, "Take Another Little Piece of My Heart." You know, even though it's causing me agony uh, when you put me in uh, your arms, I just say, "Take another little piece of my heart." Um, yeah. So her Venus is at fourteen Aquarius and Mercury at nine Aquarius opposite Pluto at six Leo. Right. Right. And the and the of course, the Mercury being there brings in the communication of it with, and even the screaming of it. Like people, like Mercury Pluto, emphasize it can intensify the voice as well as the mind and the communication. Uh, and think of both, say John Lennon with his scream. You know, he 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 could scream even when in the early Beatles, like with a twist and shout or something like that. <clears throat> he would have to do that last. Uh, that song lasts because it would just make make his voice so ragged at the at the end of the 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 night of singing and and when he did mother the song mother in his first solo album you know he he had a moon mercury pluto t square you see that see the moon opposite pluto quite tight um and then uh the the mercury is at 8 uh, Scorpio in a square, T-square with Pluto and the moon. So he's got all the, em <clears throat> excuse me, the emotional tendency of, you know, talking about, you know, wh whether it's betrayal or the relationship to the mother is losing his mother. You had me, but I never had you. Um, and, uh, and then he goes into the primal screaming and uh, that's the the Mercury coming in to express the 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 intensity of the emotion, and Janis Joplin did that with her singing. I mean, people uh, before Janis Joplin's um, singing in like "Piece of My Heart" or uh, her version of "Ball and Chain," she was bringing such visceral visceral intensity into her voice that it could sound just like an like an animal like an animal in uh 
screaming um, in a trap or something like that in in a ball and chain, and that's the Mercury coming in. But the Venus opposite Pluto is the part of her that um, where she sometimes it's it can be as you put it, you know, like even after you know being obsessed with the relationship, like <clears throat> you know, even, even though you aren't good for me, I love you anyway, and I don't want I don't want to leave you, even though. Or I don't want you to leave me, even though you're betraying me, even though you're causing me agony, even though uh, you're out on the street uh, <clears throat> doing what you're not supposed to do. I still, you know, want to be. I'm. It's passionate love, but it can also be pa obsessive love with the Venus Pluto. So yeah, those are. That's so. I often use the arts, you know, if I was want to contrast the her, her with. Uh, uh, like the Venus Neptune aspect, then I would bring in someone like Joni Mitchell, who has that much more almost ethereal, ethereal uh, voice, kind of angelic, the more lyrical um, uh, uh, quality of her uh, of her singing and melodies and so forth. That much more Venus Neptune compared with Venus Pluto. You know, you you make it's it's helpful to make archetypal distinctions that way. And the beauty of using the arts, whether it's film or comedy or sculpture or music, is that you can feel it. Um, uh, you can you can feel the archetype because these archetypes aren't just key words that you read about in a book and then apply in a mentalistic way. Words are helpful for getting us to the meaning. They're really crucial in getting us to the meaning. But the but the full feeling is much more readily conveyed by artistic experience because you know like music taps in very deep into the human psyche even before complex language your your music is is part of the um evolutionary uh inheritance or legacy of 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 our of homo sapiens right um some of my other examples i was looking up for venus pluto are uh frida kahlo who had a, a famously, you know, both in terms of her artistic style as well as in her like personal life and relationships and perfect kind of example. I I often use Frida Kahlo as well. You look at her art; it's just like so vivid, you know, like the the colors are just coming right out with great intensity. But she's also showing scenes of, you know, crucifixion, bloodiness, uh, you know, um, real uh, personal agony at times. Just an amazing chart she has, doesn't she? I love that yeah. chart. It's a great chart example, and she has a very close conjunction of Venus at twenty-four Gemini and Pluto at twenty-three Gemini, square square to Saturn. So it was, uh, yeah. She she really was experiencing it, and then she had all that Sun, Jupiter, Neptune, Uranus energy too. So she's she, uh, you know, her relationship to. The, the different um, men in, in, in her life, like uh, Diego uh, Rivera and the great artist, and, and uh, also um, uh, Trotsky. <clears throat> I often assign the, the film Frida that was quite well done, and it conveys it very well, the, uh, her Venus Pluto in action. Yeah. Um, and then another example is Alan Turing, who had a Venus Pluto conjunction, and although Playing a major role in the war effort and helping to break uh, German codes through um, cryptographic, you know, breaking. He was a code breaker, basically 
despite that, um, he ended up being persecuted after the war due to due to his sexual orientation, and ended up either dying or, or committing suicide as a result of um, literally having to receive chemical castration for that. Yeah, the the Plutonic is often um, what is hidden or needs to be hidden or is taboo in a in a particular society is a, in that in that convention in that world's conventions and venus pluto uh often can indicate that that kind of um hidden or sec secret or taboo form of love that that can't be um cannot be revealed uh lest one be persecuted as as he was also although saturn has a lot to do with shame but pluto can involve things involved because pluto does have a relationship to the shadow side of our our psyche that we that we don't admit to ourselves or that we don't want to admit to polite society or that we don't want to uh or that isn't allowed before the um, puritanical conventions of one's particular um, community that you you can be shamed about you you and um, there's there's often wounding around a Pluto aspect because of that uh, that that element. Yeah, that makes sense in the in the cultural relativity of of taboos or what is taboo at any given time in a certain point in time in society or what have or have you, but the need to have things that are hidden or suppressed or underground about either one's own life or one's psyche or, in this case, relationships or what have you. That's right. Um, let's see one other example. Maurizio Gucci, who was like the grandson of the founder of the Gucci fashion empire, had a, a Venus Pluto conjunction, and um, he inherited like the Gucci fashion empire in the 1980s, but he ended up. Leaving his wife and um, his wife actually, or his ex-wife, ended up having him murdered uh, afterwards as a result of that. And there's actually a movie I think that just came out or is about to come out where the, it's uh, dramatized. And I think like Lady Gaga is playing his ex-wife who had him had him murdered. Uh, yeah, I look forward to to seeing it. Um, you often see uh, Venus Pluto, sometimes Venus Jupiter Pluto, uh, in the charts of people involved in high fashion and, and, and where there's a lot of wealth, a lot of power, a lot of intensity focused on um, on high fashion, on cosmetics, on uh, expensive um, uh, clothes, design, shoes, etc. And um, but the those other qualities of the venus pluto the betrayal the um murdering the uh, uh, murdering of the uh by the betrayed uh, uh those 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 can be themes as well yeah i i've seen venus pluto uh, in an, in a number of other charts often mixed with jupiter where there where there are people who involve are involved in the the very high echelon level of um, uh, fashion, where there's often a lot of manipulation, a lot of power power struggle uh, within families, within the company, um, and uh, often you know kind of obsessive, uh, erotic involvements and things like that. 
yeah, power struggles and and power plays seem to be major Pluto themes. Yeah, and there 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 can be, although Jupiter particularly has to do with uh, wealth and you know success and money, etc. But there's an interesting relationship that the Greeks recognized. Uh, uh, there were two different gods, uh, Pluto. Uh, Pluton in in Greek, where the the O and uh, the O was long O, Omega, um, uh, and then that was the Pluto, the Lord of the Underworld. Um, but there was a, a Plutos, where the O is a, a, a short O. That's the Omicron. Notice that, like we like we we now have the Omicron variant. That's the short O in Greek. Um, well, uh, the the long O is om- omega, um, omega, right? Um, well, omicron is O micron, like it's a micro O is omicron, and the omega is the mega O, uh, the last, and it's a long O, and the long O, Pluto, Pluton, um, was the one who was the lord of the underworld, where, while Plutos was actually a separate deity for uh, originally involving uh, the god of wealth, but the god of we- but wealth and riches were often seen as being underground, where, where the minerals were and so forth, or or the fertility of the land, and <clears throat> eventually there became a kind of conflation of of, of the two uh, that also was present um, right in the Greco-Roman uh, mythic lineage. So our word plutocracy. Uh, ruled by the wealthy uh, also has, uh, it's kind of like the powerful wealthy plutocracy. Um, You kind of combine them there. Yeah, I was going to put this off till later, but two of my favorite charts um, for timed, you know, some of the richest men in the world are, uh, for example, Bill Gates, who has a Jupiter-Pluto conjunction in the second house uh, in Leo. Here's Bill Gates's chart. And, And these Sort of extreme wealth, like wealth, but you know, because there's like normal wealth of like, let's say, generational wealth or what have you, but then sometimes there's wealth taken to the utmost extreme of being literally like the richest person in the world at one point in time. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so you, you see Jupiter Pluto a lot in, um, in uh, very wealthy charts. So JP Morgan, JP Piermont. Pierpont Morgan is another uh, Jupiter Pluto figure, um, and uh, uh, I I have one more. It's um, my other famous one is Warren Buffett has a Jupiter Pluto conjunction in the yeah. eighth house. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's that's a, that's a perfect example as well. Um, now, people all people who don't have all people who have Jupiter Pluto uh, are, are not necessarily. Um, Going to be uh, super wealthy figures, uh, as I can speak from direct experience. Um, the uh, as Stan Groff and I used to laugh, both of us having the Jupiter Pluto conjunction in his part in his um, uh, in his case, and in in my case, uh, the uh, opposition. opposition. Okay. And he, do you mind if I show your chart? Oh no, not at all. Okay, here we go. And while we both have the Jupiter-Pluto pretty strong in our uh, being, it comes through in totally different ways, which I, I, I won't 
uh, spell out particularly, but but enormous wealth is not particularly our our leading characteristic. Yeah. And, and a, a wealth of information or wealth of knowledge. I mean, it. You know, I don't know what your stance is on houses, but it's interesting that it's falling in the second house, eighth house axis in both Gates and uh, Buffett, whereas for mm -hmm. you it's falling in the third house, ninth house axis. Ninth house, yeah. Jupiter up there in the ninth and uh, uh, and uh, Pluto in the third for me. Yeah. And, you know, when I write books, uh, you know, they tend to be big books, you know, like the whole history of Western thought, you know, or co Cosmos and Psyche. And, and there's a tendency. Jupiter Pluto has a, a a drive to you know kind of again Pluto intensifies whatever it touches. Jupiter wants to get the big overview, or it wants to take in all the cultures of the world, um, or it wants to you know have a global perspective. Or you see it with people who are involved in geopolitics, um, for example, uh, Gorbachev, for example, or or or. Uh, um, Kissinger, uh, kind of shadow version of it. Uh, so yeah, it it can take many different forms. Uh, the but the also the drive to it. Pluto is a, a a passionate drive towards whatever it's touching. So if it's Pluto, Jupiter, you know, we talk, we were talking about Pluto Venus in terms of that drive towards passionate love, you know, or expression of artistic beauty or whatever. Um, it with the Pluto. Jupiter, it can be not just a drive to wealth, but it also can be a drive towards uh, excellence, for example, trying, striving for excellence or striving for success, but there's different ways of defining success. Uh, um, I, Lincoln, who, uh, Abraham Lincoln, who had, you know, he underwent such deep depression at his point, even like suicidal depression at certain points in his life. And he had he had some really difficult things in his in his birth chart. You know, and he lost his mother when she was when he was quite young. Um, great sense of, of uh, loss there. But if you look, yeah, so there's 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 Lincoln with that Saturn Neptune conjunction, um, suffering in, in a square to the uh, Mercury and, and Pluto. But look at that that Jupiter-Pluto conjunction with Mercury, what powerful language he had. Uh, the the um, Gettysburg Address, I mean, if, if you were just like single out like one, like say two or three of the greatest speeches that have ever been given with great power to them, moral power, uh, that's his Mercury-Pluto-Jupiter. You, you would think of the Gettysburg Address, you'd think of his second inaugural address, that that kind of quality. And, um, uh, he so it can and during one of his periods of of kind of most suicidal space he said what turned him around is he said i'm going to try i'm going to try to live a life in which i do something significant and that will make my life worthwhile and so i won't i won't leave it you know, I'll stay and do if I can just do something significant, and that's what kind of drove him into the political, into the realm of politics. Sometimes Jupiter Pluto likes to succeed in politics, um, and could be a very political. Uh, I mean, Lincoln was very political, uh, and you see it with people who have leadership qualities too. Jupiter has a kind of leader quality. You know, the Zeus there at the at the front uh, at the top. 
but Pluto drives that. It gives it power. It empowers uh, the whatever it touches. <clears throat> and so, you know, the fact that Washington, George Washington, um, Abraham Lincoln, um, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, perhaps the three presidents that just had the most influence, you know, in in the first uh, 150 years of our of our uh, nation's history. They all had Jupiter-Pluto conjunctions. Um, it's it's you you see it where there is a real real leadership potential as well. A lot of the alpha are, um, actors, the lead actors, you know, that uh, have Jupiter-Pluto, the the um, Richard Burton, the uh, or uh, Paul Newman, or um, those, those kind. Yeah, see see that Jupiter-Pluto. Um, and in, in with FDR, in his case, he's got the sun squaring not, uh, Saturn and Neptune and Jupiter, so quite tightly, Sun and Venus, very tight, square Saturn. That was his, you know, the difficult, real, distant relationship with with uh, with Eleanor, and at the same time um, having to hide his love and or separate himself from um, the who he who he was in love with, but it's he had to go through with that sun square Saturn Neptune. He had to great, go through the great, uh, you know, the debilitating illness of the polio, and um, and and dealing with fear and anxiety. And so that's why he could say the only thing we have to fear is fear itself in his inaugural address. That became such a kind of motto for his um, his long administration. That's. The fact that he stared it in the face, you know, that Saturn-Neptune potential for kind of a non-specific fear or anxiety, uh, and um, the and that was overcoming the the entire zeitgeist of of the 1930s during the Great Depression. But with that Jupiter in there, the Sun square, the Jupiter-Neptune, great faith in the possibility of of, uh, of a better world, um, more empathic, compassionate, taking care of the the poor and the under the working class. But then there's that Jupiter-Pluto, which it's 11 degrees away, but those who, of you who know my work know that I'm. It, it's quite clear to me that we need to uh, expand our orbs if we are going to understand how the, ar the planetary archetypes interact with each other because um, they're not like on again, off again, light switches, the aspects that just turn on when they're one degree away or, or even like three or four degrees away. Um, they're, they're, they're archetypal waveforms, like as it's coming into a big conjunction or a big opposition. Um, the If you look at the full moon, when the sun is opposite the moon, the moon looks full for... Uh, Right up to about fifteen degrees on 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 each side of the uh, you know basically for two nights that the that the you're you are in a full moon part of the cycle and the same thing with the new moon when it's invisible, um, and and empirically, like I I didn't start off with the with the with the larger wave or with these larger orbs but it was empirically just looking. There's, you look at that Uranus-Pluto conjunction of the 60s, for example, Rob Hand and I have talked about it, you know, and it's just so clear empirically that you have to expand it to, uh, you know, all the way from about 1960 to about 1972, that 
particular Uranus-Pluto energy that's so familiar to us uh, was in evidence in the civil rights movement, in the in the uh, women's movement, in the ecology movement, in the youth movement, and um, uh, the, the the revolutions around the world, African independence movements, and so forth. It's and even like the late '60s, after it's exact. And going into the early 70s, those, those of us who lived through the 60s and 70s recognize that when we talk about the 60s, we're also talking a bit about the early 70s, that there, it was that energy had, had flushed into the system so potently, that archetypal uh, energy that uh, it just doesn't stop when the aspect is, is moved past like five degrees. It's, it's really cooking at that point. So anyway, so that's also true with natal charts. It's one of the reasons I like um, archetypal explorer uh, for the way that they visualize some of these things as a on more of a graph, as like a waveform, like this illustration of like the Saturn Pluto conjunction that kind of went exact and peaked in early 2020, but still stayed in effect and and came back a little bit in orb when they retrograded back into a range. But it's like a it's like a range of influence that lasts for. As you said, in the conjunction up to fifteen degrees or ten degrees in the other hard aspects. Yeah, ex- ex- exactly. Um, uh, that's Kyle uh, Kyle uh, Lymeter's, um work. He he was a student of mine in in the philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness program at, at CIS, and and I I would sometimes draw those waveforms in that way so that people even for their personal transits so that they could see the um see the way uh it it kind of is intensifying and then there, there's a kind of bell curve there the, the first person who started um, uh employing that in a uh in an app um was uh the uh the astrological uh what was it called um it was called the calendar of uh, the archetypal calendar, uh, and um, gosh, it's been anyway. He was the first one. He was focused on on per- personal transits. Uh, the I think was it the cosmic window, the cosmic view was his original thing, and then he started using it. I, I kind of wrote, gave him uh, the, the the basic programmer. Right, and he worked out the program that started using it and then Kyle for archetypal explorer has employed it in a more uh, comp- comprehensive way. Yeah, well it's been nice over the past year in order to visualize some of these outer planet transits and understanding the the wider range in which they're they're in effect and also going back and looking at some historical examples like the um um pandemic in the earlier part of the 20th century around, you know, 19 19- 18 and 1919 and how the Jupiter Pluto conjunction which went exact in 1918 but when it retrograded back and got very close in 1919 that second that ended ended up coinciding with the what they call like the the deadly second wave of the pandemic when the most deaths took place after there was a mutation um and then similarly there were some interesting things um in 2020, when we sort of comparing some of the different COVID graphs to some of the Jupiter-Pluto alignments that took place during the course of of 2020, and um, when the number of COVID cases would skyrocket, or when 
hospitalizations would go up and other things like that. It's been interesting coming up with some of these new tools in order to visualize some of these things. Exactly. In that case, of course, the Jupiter-Pluto was in a triple conjunction with Saturn, so it gets it was quite complexified by that. So you're getting a Jupiter, Saturn, and Pluto all in that triple conjunction. And there was, I think, I, I gave early in the pandemic, I did a, a talk called What's Happening in the Stars uh, Right Now, because <laughs> that was the question a lot of people were asking. Um, and it was uh, for CIS uh, public programs. It's, it was just called What's Happening in the Stars Right Now. And I... Um, and I use those graphs uh, to 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 show uh, how and and kind of unpack more the complex interaction between the Jupiter, the Saturn, and the Pluto. In fact, there was a period there where Mars was in there too, right when the pandemic was just really launching there in February and March of of uh, 2020. Yeah, that that pileup of of a lot of planets in Capricorn, and then a little bit in Aquarius. Um, that was really the lineup, and that was the one that um, Andre Andre Barbeau, because you you were given a lot of credit last year for the work you did in Cosmos and Psyche, which very clearly, sort of in archetypal terms, broadly pointed to that as being an important alignment for a number of those different reasons. But then Barbeau had actually done a study on pandemics and had identified that time range as a potential for a major pandemic, um, specifically because he narrowly focused on. That question of of when have pandemics occurred historically in the past, and what alignments might indicate that in the future? Yes, did uh, I mean as our, he particularly was looking at when you get a clustering of of, of several planets within a very narrow uh, range of degrees um, w- w- uh, being a factor. I think he 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 paid. I mean that wasn't the only thing he he paid attention to. I mean he was really w- one of the. Um, really key figures in the development of mundane astrology, and he he was an influence on Charles Harvey in England, who who really was uh, a, uh, became a, the the leading mundane astrologer in in the UK, and published with uh, Nick Campion and um, was it uh, I think particularly with Nick, Nick Campion uh, maybe might. Possibly one other person co-authored a book on mundane astrology. I don't. It's been enough years that I don't have not remembering the third author, which I should. Uh, but Charles was the was the uh, kind of leading leading figure on that. But and Andre Barbeau. There's even uh, he goes back to uh, the 40s and 50s, and there's very interesting letters exchanged between Carl Gustav Jung and Barbeau. Uh, about how astrology, you know, how Jung was finding astrology's uh, value, right? Yeah, um, and we talked about a little bit about this last year. I did an episode that people can go back if they want to study more about that, and both your statements as well as Barbeau's statements in episode two fifty four, titled "Misconceptions About Mundane Astrology in the Media," where it's like there was this article by the New York Times in May of "Will Coronavirus Kill Astrology?" and whether you know the p- pandemic was completely missed by the astrologers and our whole discussion was was actually about how barbeau and and you had done a pretty good job in through looking at historical cycles at identifying this upcoming one as a as a difficult one so um going back 
to yeah, you can't count the the times is so valuable for a lot of things, but I don't go to it for astrological accuracy <laughs> or knowledge, yeah. sympathetic knowledge of of the astrological discipline. That's it's not uh, its cup of tea. Well, and I meant to ask you about that as a digression because it's been actually coming up recently, and I'm a little bit nervous about seeing some of the younger generation of astrologers that have just come into the field in the past few years or the past decade. It's been a period of astrology flourishing again in a way that I don't think we we've seen since the 1960s or 70s. Um, but there's been weirdly also a drop off. It seems like in the skeptical movement over the past decade, and I remember in like even the 2000s, like the skeptic movements were much stronger uh, and had better leadership and was much more antagonistic against things like astrology. But it seems like that's fallen by the wayside a little bit over the past decade but I was curious about um you you always make that statement about how astrology is regarded as the gold standard of pseudoscience and or a, or, did, or a superstition generally you superstition. know it's it's what you want to compare if you want to compare say something is really not worth our intellectual uh serious engagement um mm. you would compare it to astrology right if, so if, my, if you're well educated so my question is is what I wrote down is how do you deal with practicing a subject that is viewed with such disdain by most of academia as well as scientists how does one deal with the place that astrology holds relative to science presently how do you deal with skeptics in particular and is it possible to change somebody's mind who is skeptical and what does it actually really take to do that in tangible terms can it be done with an intellectual argument or demonstration, or does it only happen by having some sort of personal experience of astrology that is is impressive? Well, you packed a lot into that. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> sorry, this is like it's a okay. whole episode in itself. But yeah, just... it would be. It would be. Uh, well, just a couple headlines. Um, f- first of all, I think it's value. I've argued, and I believe this is the case, that it's actually somewhat valuable for those of us who are in touch with the extraordinary value of astrology what a what a gift it is what what um, I mean it gives insight whether you're looking at the arts whether you're looking at history whether you're looking at this at psychology whether you're looking at um, uh, virtually any field astrology provides Insights that that nothing else, does, even philosophy, uh, the nature of the importance of uh, of of the nature of archetypes for making sense of all sorts of uh, um, philosophical mysteries like nominalism versus realism and so forth. So, uh, astrology is such a gift. In a sense, it's such a privilege, such a kind of spiritual honor that those of us who have been initiated into it. Have been uh, bestowed that it's kind of an important. It, it would be very easy to get inflated with that knowledge. Um, the a person who knows astrology well has a kind of inside vision, uh, a vision into the interior dynamics of the of the anima mundi that the non astrologer, the average person, the, even the brilliant scientist, and or man or woman of letters does not have uh, available to them. And that can lend itself to a kind of hubris, a kind of uh, inflated sense of superiority of like spiritual um, uh, elite. 
and having the reality that astro- uh, the social reality that astrology is so uh, widely has been so widely despised not not just you know relegated to second class status but really scorned or actively um, uh, opposed in in quite intensely shaming ways. Uh, in some ways, that acts as a kind of humbling compensation for the potential inflation that can come with this special privilege that astrologers have. I that's I I think um, that's helpful to keep in mind. It 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 keeps us humble, <laughs> which is a, something we generally can use. And then the second thing, um, I think you're right that uh, there has been. I don't think there's been a dwindling among the skeptics of a certain generation that was very, you know, the Richard Dawkins of the year, of the of the world are still around, but they're getting older. Um, and but there's there's new ones that are quite ready to take their place. Uh, but I think there has been, particularly with the uh, millennials, uh, the generation born under the big long Uranus Neptune conjunction between the the later 80s the, the uh, and the 90s that i i think there's been a kind of that they don't have the same what i would call epistemological armoring there there there's more there isn't such a rigid boundary between uh what's what's truth and what's imagination there's more of a sense that this is a more, there's a more mysterious relationship between the imagination and reality and that we are always seeing through our imagination but there there's a requirement for a, a rigorous imagination you have to have rigor in imagination not just uh, a a an undisciplined uh, one but even the most skeptical scientist or or philosophical uh, reductive skeptic is seeing things through his or her imagination. It's just a reductive imagination. Um, it's a filter. It uh, it's only letting certain things through, and so uh, the I think the this is where there is tremendous uh, value in going through experiences that will dissolve that armored boundary, armored epistemological. Uh, barrier and open oneself up to the possibility that, for example, consciousness is uh, pervades the universe and is not just a uh, function of, of uh, Homo sapiens or of a few um, of the higher mammals, as they're called, but rather is a um, that we are embedded in a a conscious, intelligent universe, and that our conscious intelligence is the cosmos's conscious intelligence in human form that we're we are cosmic expressions of, of the whole it's just that it looks like astrology suggests that uh the universe has kind of given left quite valuable clues to that part of itself that is homo sapiens to be able to read symbolically the movements of the planets uh as, so as to live a better more uh, aware uh, life. So um, I think you're. I think you're getting at the importance of uh, having some balance between 
uh, skeptical rigor and uh, cred, just a kind of undisciplined credulousness, credulity, uh, where you where uh, you just think anything anything goes. Uh, that's why I I'm always encouraging uh, serious astrological students and and researchers um, to. There's a kind of ethics of being a good astrologer. Like, don't make generalizations on the basis of one or two seemingly uh, uh, big correlations that you've noticed, and then just say that's what Pluto in the fifth house means, or that's what a uh, a, a Chiron Vesta midpoint uh, it, it signifies. Because I've seen this in my you know my my chart, you know. One should be able to give uh, a dozen compelling examples uh, that other people can assess. That you know, from the public record, famous individuals, important historical events, uh, significant cultural uh, milestones. That and then you look at where the planets were, and um, and you you don't just ascribe something to your new favorite. Uh, uh, astrological factor without first taking into account the the factors that have been most um, supported by empirical evidence that m many people have uh, come to a consensus about. For example, there's pretty much universal consensus today among practicing astrologers who use uh, the outer three planets, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, uh, as well as the classical planets for, uh, through Saturn, there's pretty much universal consensus about their meanings. Um, and you can see these meanings played out whether you are looking at natal charts or you're looking at um, personal transits or personal progressions or whether you're looking at synastry and relational, you know, ch the relationships between individual charts or if you're looking at world transits the whole mundane astrology and the collective um, cycles. We need to be able to, um, if, we're, if we're going to be identifying the, the meaning of a new uh, planetary body or, or, or celestial body, or if we're going to be making a claim about what this factor means in that chart, we need to be able to back it up with compelling and substantial evidence and uh, this is where the, the mainstream modern educational system, um, in higher education in particular, as you go through college and graduate school and so forth, it's built up certain standards of critical thinking and of uh, uh, bringing in evidence and uh, cogent argument that will support a position. And so when one is writing a PhD dissertation, you have to meet those uh, standards um, in order to in order to pass and enter into the community of fellow PhDs. Those are valuable um, those are valuable virtues and disciplines to cultivate as a scholar. And astrologers have often been, a rather a little looser in doing so. I mean, for you know, a lot of understandable reasons in earlier centuries and earlier generations. But if we're going to bring it, make that bridge to 
the um, the the mainstream educated world of of deep thinking, morally uh, and intellectually sophisticated members of our society, we have to use critical thinking and uh, solid uh, empirical evidence and, and cogent argumentation in order to communicate um, the principles and the convictions that, that we are implementing in our, in our, in our practice. So that's basically um, the way in which we can incorporate this, the skeptical or the rigorous or the, let, let's look at what's the simplest, most compelling explanation for this phenomenon without getting into some um, arcane possible explanation. Well, we have to incorporate that kind of thinking in balance with a disciplined imagination and, and a capacity for symbolic insight and and a knowledge of the esoteric traditions that are in in the astrological world, which you've done so much to to um, help vivify for for many people. So I think it's that balance that we need. I mean, as somebody whose life's work seems to have been um, very much directed towards making the single best case for astrology. To non-astrologers in cosmos and psyche, um, you know, to what extent it, though is it each astrologer's job to attempt to do that and, and make the case for astrology or prove it to those who might be skeptical? Versus sometimes there, there's been a tendency, it seems like over the past few decades, to instead pull back and become more insular and say, you know, if people don't believe astrology is legitimate, that's fine. That that's up to them. Um, so, but to the extent that no matter even no matter how rigorous cosmos and psyche was, that it doesn't meet up to, let's say, the scientific definition of, of demonstrating something statistically and therefore falls short of what many scientists might consider to be scientific. Um, you know, will we ever be able to truly prove astrology in a way that that meets that? And do we need to continue trying to? Should we still be striving for that? Or is it something that should just Stay more insular. Yeah, very, very good question. First of all, I don't think everybody has the um, dharma or the you know life calling uh, to to do to take on that particular role. Some people was, was that the goal? Was that ultimately the goal, though? I mean, I, th that, I think that it everybody was, would be trying to prove astrology. No no, 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 no. I was curious for you personally. Was that the goal with cosmos and psyche all along? The primary one. Well, it was to um, yeah. I mean, it was it was basically to give some hint of the power of the astrological perspective and the um, the empirical data. I mean, cosmos and psyche is barely scratched the surface of of my research and of the the, the data I got. And I and but I just thought, okay, I'm just going to do these four cycles and you know do it in a way that will help and and give a philosophical and historical kind of uh, context so that people could could um enter into the astrological perspective and a lot of people who had had only who did not know astrology and had only read my earlier book uh the passion of the western mind which was not an astrological book but which was a history of western thought and it was being used in a lot of universities as it still is as a as a kind of history of Western philosophy and or Western thought, that kind of thing. 
Um, but then they read Cosmos and Psyche, and um, a good number of people who didn't know astrology or had any reason to think astrology was worth paying any attention to got opened up to it by reading that in, in that sequence. And in some sense, I wrote Passion of the Western Mind as an entree to an astrological world view. I just wanted, I used the Passion of the Western Mind as a way of, of giving people an understanding of <clears throat> the evolution of our cosmology and of archetypes and, and uh, from Plato to Jung and so forth. That would that would help people make the um, you know in the Copernican revolution and so forth. That would help people be prepared for when Cosmos and Psyche came out, which was originally going to be one big book, and it turned into two two rather large books. So yeah, that was um, to a, a certain extent the intention, but I think I think it's very valuable for a whether it's a, a field or a person, to go into an insular mode for a while to protect something that's growing, that's not ready to be invaded by skeptics. Um, and I think that's what astrology did for, for some years. There was a time there in the 70s when some of the, because of the Gokland research coming out of the 50s and 60s, and by the 70s, it, certain astrologers, including John Addy in particular in England and um, Charles Harvey, were, were getting the sense that uh, the statistical support for astrology was going to make a big difference. And, and some scientists who had no appreciation of astrology at all, like Hans Eysenck, um, were very compelled by the statistics uh, and um, felt that they we had to pay attention to it, even if it went against our basic uh, beliefs, which it did for Hans Eysenck. But um, human being, you know, scientists are human beings, and uh, skeptics are human beings, and they and human beings have a a genius for walling out certain data that they would find uh, challenging to their most cherished belief system. Often that belief system is deeply intertwined with their own sense of identity and what their career is, what their whole way of uh, defining themselves. So to let in this data as being um, determinative would be so threatening to so many things that it's easier to just say, oh, this is faulty evidence or it's faulty data. Um, the problem with the statistical research is that mu much of the research wasn't sophisticated enough to uh, either recognize the patterns, or though they did recognize the patterns with the with the great uh, the huge Gokulan research databases, uh, they recognized some patterns. But it was it wasn't like something that every astrologer would just say, "Okay, what does Gokulan say about this? Now I can use this in my next reading." The readings were coming from the esoteric tradition and from their own astrologers' own practice. It wasn't coming from the, the statistical correlations, which were, which were too uh, approximate, too rough-edged. It was, it was too brutal, a, brute, a, a, um, a tool, an instrument to get us to something as nuanced as the astrological uh, correlations. It was uh, reductive. 
Yeah, quite quite reductive. Now, let me just say that there seems to have been in the last few years quite a, uh, a an, an increase in interest in a more sophisticated approach to uh, to astrological research. I mean, even when when I should mention when Psych- when Cosmos and Psyche came out. Uh, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, um, its head lead scientist, uh, Dean Radin, called me up uh, and asked if I would do an interview with him. And he and he said, um, "Well, I'm convinced." Uh, and um, when I talked to him about, I didn't think that statistics were a nuanced, sophisticated enough, subtle enough tool to be able to, uh, you know. You have to have multivariant. Uh, you have to you, ha- you have to be able to take in multiple variables at once. You also have to have a sense of archetypal multivalence. That is, this any given planetary principle can manifest in you know physical ways, psychological ways, relational ways, um, but it also can manifest in destructive or creative ways. In you know. Uh, trivial forms, but also in very profound or noble forms. So it's, you can't tell just by looking at the birth chart, whether somebody's going to become Hitler or, or, or chaplain, you know, uh, to give one famous example. And so, um, so Dean, but Dean Radin said, you know, there are forms of statistical analysis uh, using what he was called technically are called fuzzy categories that could that could encompass um, something like multi- archetypal multivalence. So he was already thinking in 2006 that we could increase the sophistication of the statistical uh, analyses. But um, my friend Will Keepen, who is a physicist uh, uh, as well as a um, and he deeply studied with Stan Groff and with my, with me as well, and has written uh, about astrology at times and, to, and given presentations to science uh, conferences about it. And he, uh, he is in touch with a number of uh, statistical researchers that, that are doing quite remarkable work right now. And he's, uh, Will is um, moving uh, he's he's creating a, pre, uh, a, a, a he's writing a paper that will summarize a lot of this that will come out soon. I hope I can remember to send you a copy when when he's got got one ready, because uh, there, even though I myself find quantitative forms of analysis um, to be too uh, to just insufficient for um, registering the uh, extraordinary correlations that the uh, symbolically attuned kind of poetic in a disciplined way, but that kind of poetic uh, archetypal imagination that is also able to, you know, be astronomically, mathematically rigorous, et cetera. And where you're not just fitting in anything into the categories, but you're really staying, you have a good sense for, what is uh, a, a true discernment. So you really have to use discernment and you have to use self-critical rigor. I talked about this towards the end of Cosmos and Psyche. Uh, so I think statistics may make may come in, uh, but will probably never equal the human mind and the full human faculties that in the same way, 
statistics are never going to register why Beethoven's Emperor Concerto is the amazing work it is. Um, it takes the whole human being with all his or her faculties uh, to be able to, including the 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 emotions and the imagination and the and the and the somatic uh, uh, experience, in order to take in the meaning of Beethoven's mu music. Beethoven's music is visible archetypally in the birth chart. You can see his birth chart and go, "Wow, that so much fits his uh, his music," you know. Uh, but um, statistically, you're not any more than you're going to be able to re register the um, quantitatively the the um, uh, physical manifestation of the music and what the mathematical form of it, it it's not going to duplicate what the human being can experience with their whole soul and body when they're listening to the music. But that's how the archetypes speak is to the whole soul and body and spirit and, and mind and not just to this um, uh, quantitative uh, form of analysis, which is very valuable in certain respects, but very limited in others. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I, it's just something I've been thinking about lately about how much um, anyone can ever be convinced of astrology being something legitimate or worth looking into through an intellectual argument versus how much somebody is truly skeptical about it would have to have an experience of it in seeing their own transits line up and experiencing an event and the just how notable that that correlation can be in living through it in order to truly have any sort of quote unquote belief in astrology or, or belief that it's somehow legitimate um, but that's a whole whole thing so yeah. uh, bring it I might just quickly say uh, on on that point that I think you do have to go through some transformation of your epistemology that is how you know how you know things and what what you regard as being true you know a, 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 some a way of knowing a valid way of knowing you have to go through a transformation at the epistemological level. And that means not just uh, most people open up to astrology or and to other more like expanded forms of knowing through going through some kind of a, a transformation that's existential. There's, it's often just as people go to a, an astrologer or a therapist when they're in, in crisis, then they, they feel, okay, my the current tools that I have to live my life are not adequate. I would like, I'm going to try to expand the range of my tools in order to get some insight to live a better life, uh, live more skillfully and, and wholly. And that's... Um, that often requires some kind of a crisis, which our world is going through right now, and is therefore probably more likely to open up to a, a, a wider range of perspectives. Unfortunately, also a wider range of <laughs> fake news and and uh, disinformation too, and um, uh, you know weird beliefs. But the uh, the opening of the, what. Will keep and calls the uh, and others have called the epistemologies of the heart that involve the the empathic imagination, the 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 somatic, the 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 symbolic, and not just uh, 
a narrow version of rationalist empiricism that views quantitative measurement as the only measurement of what is real. I think most sophisticated intellectuals today have gotten past that. Yes, there's a, a good number of people who are still stuck in the reductionist camp, but most sophisticated intellectuals, I mean, read something like Charles Taylor's um, Sources of the Self, The Making of the Modern Identity. I mean, he just, you know, written 30 years ago and just totally, ha you know, he's he's got such an embrace of, of the modern uh, intellectual and philosophical scene and so recognizes the 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 need to uh, transcend such a narrow reductionist um, perspective as being determinative of of our worldview. It's just it's a um, it's a, a severely limited uh, worldview, and to to live within it is to live in a kind of prison, a kind of iron cage, uh, and and also there's destructive consequences that come from living in such an objectifying. Uh, worldview, and we're seeing the results in our in our uh, e ecological uh, and, and social and ecological um, crisis of our time. Yeah, part of the epistemological issue you just mentioned, but maybe part of it is the issue of the scientific worldview that the human senses are um, and are fundamentally flawed and untrustworthy in terms of their ability to accurately perceive the world around them. Whereas um, for astrologers and in looking at astrology, they're actually crucial or paramount in terms of accurately being able to understand the correlations and the and the symbolic importance of what's happening in human life on a individual basis. Yeah, um, that's that that that's exactly right. And the the uh, principle uh, that. The senses can't be trusted. Um, that our direct subjective human experience can't be trusted. That we need to transcend that with a mathematization of our experience that can be registered on a machine. Um, you know, it comes out of uh, uh, John Locke, Galileo, Descartes, uh, uh, Bacon. We're all kind of moving in that direction, the distinction between what's called primary qualities and secondary qualities was a big thing at that point. Uh, only primary qualities like mass, weight, uh, <clears throat> uh, things that could be measured, those were real, but everything else that human experience people experience, those are just subjective realities that are, can't be seen as scientific. But I think what's happened is that there was for quite a while a kind of colonization by the reductive natural sciences, a colonization of the human sciences and of the humanities in, the, in, the, uh, in higher education. And that there's, there's a, a turn that's going on that's recognizing that uh, the the natural sciences, and particularly reductive natural sciences, are not um, a sufficient methodological universe to uh, encompass what the human what the humanities, philosophy, religion, psychology, literature they can't they can't be subjected to this. You know what was very um, useful in developing a mechanistic science. And so 
there is a uh, movement right now within higher education to recognize the need to uh, elevate the importance of the humanities of a classical uh, of, of a of a liberal education that includes the sciences with the humanities that includes philosophy literature the arts um, uh, and depth psychology not just um, uh, looking at psychology in terms of behaviorism, g- genetics, and, and pharmacology. Uh, so, yeah. Well, I'm I'm imagining we have probably carried our uh, our audience uh, long past their. Uh, hopefully, they're listening to this in, in segments rather than all in one sitting. Yeah, I think it'll be um, broken up into chapters. Um, so just to bring things back full circle, uh, so your book was published in 2006. Interestingly, um, after the discovery of er- the dwarf planet Eris in 2005, Pluto was actually uh, demoted by the International Astronomical Union in 2006 from planet status down to a new category that they created of dwarf planet. Um, this created some arguments or questions among astrologers of whether that had any significance symbolically or had any relevance for astrologers, or if astrologers should just keep on doing what they had always done up to that point with Pluto. Um, did, you, did you have any feelings or thoughts about that? Well, the first thing to point out is that the decision to uh, demote Pluto was made by a group of astronomers. Um, there's a lot to a, a, Planetary scientists were, in general, quite opposed to uh, this decision, and were very vocal about it, and are still quite uh, um, feel that it was not the right decision. And even amongst in the astronomical, uh, the IAU uh, that made the decision, a, a particular committee that um, came came to the decision and. The head of that committee was Owen Gingrich, who was my professor of astronomy back at Harvard in the late 1960s. And um, he's the world's expert, still is, on, on Copernicus and Kepler. Great, great man. Um, uh, and he he was the head of that committee, and he disagreed with the decision. He, he issued a dissent on the decision, felt... And there's a, a, a lot of people feel that the addition of this, what had never been used before as a criterion for deciding if something were a dwarf planet is whether um, the, the planet can clear the neighborhood of, of, of other, of other uh, bodies, that it has sufficient um, uh, gravi- gravitational uh, power and mass to do that. And as many planetary scientists said, well, if you put the Earth out in the Kuiper Belt where Pluto is, it wouldn't um, clear the neighborhood either. Uh, so it's this is just a one has to recognize that this decision is a probably a temporary. I just read an article within the last couple of weeks in um, a science journal about how this is seen as being. A provisional, temporary, and very possibly erroneous categorization that will be rethought. But the main thing to recognize, and this is so characteristic of our postmodern era, is to recognize that these are human categories: planet, dwarf planet, uh, 
uh, we, these are names that we come up with. Uh, I mean, planet used to include the sun and moon because uh, the Greeks, um, the word planet meant that it wandered. Planet planetes meant it was uh, a a wanderer, which means that if you looked out, all the stars each night stayed in the same relationship to each other as they moved across the sky. But the planets like Mars and Mercury and Venus, but also the sun and the moon, they gradually moved across the uh, ecliptic. They, they, they had different zodiacal signs behind them at different times of the year uh, and over the years. And so they were seen as wanderers and therefore planets. Now planets mean something different than it did before. It's so these are categories, and they certainly didn't um, make a difference in terms of anything that I or my fellow researchers in the uh, astrological community that I'm familiar with, and the archetypal uh, research collective that's kind of emerged out of CIS. Pluto is an extremely powerful planetary influence and in fact it is the very archetype of power and it didn't get diminished by its categorization as a dwarf planet um it probably carries cares very little as to what human beings call it as dwarf or or uh, uh or, or not a dwarf planet it is smaller than the other um planets but interestingly eris which was the planet that uh or the new body that uh they Help trigger the recategorization. They originally thought Eris was was larger than Pluto, uh, as well as more massive. But it turns out that Pluto is um, slightly larger than Eris. Eris has slightly more mass than Pluto. Pluto has slightly more uh, volume and size than than Eris, and um, it because. Eris and these other bodies that are further out uh, have such huge cycles um, and eccentric cycles. You can't get the same data so far. We haven't been able to get a, the same quality of data uh, relative to the inner planets, relative to world transits that we have for uh, all the planets out through Pluto. Um, but I think the fact that we are discovering all these other celestial bodies and these other um, circumstellar disks like the Kuiper belt and the scattered disks and the, the Oort cloud, these, this we're, we're basically recognizing that our solar system is a permeable uh, body uh, or system that is uh, we're, we're, we're recognizing that it's got a kind of permeable boundary with the rest of the galaxy. We're opening up to the larger galaxy, uh, just as we've recognized that our galaxy is one of many, many, many galaxies, that it's in larger clusters and superclusters. So part of, I think, our postmodern moment is recognizing how we subjectively categorize things, and there's nothing absolute about a term like planet or dwarf planet, uh, et cetera, um, or male and female, like uh, these are that binary, the masculine feminine binary is, is, uh, is not the only way of, of uh, understanding the richness of, of human uh, gender and uh, sexuality, et cetera. So 
we're recognizing that certain assumptions that seem to be absolute certitudes and like built into the nature of the cosmic reality are in fact human constructs mm -hmm. and are permeable and are culturally inflected, et cetera. And we're also recognizing that just as the, we are not skin encapsulated Cartesian egos, but we are in a permeable, porous relationship with all of life around us and in us and in relationship to each other uh, and in relationship to the earth community, animals, the air, the water, the microbes and so forth, and the stars and planets. So also is our um, solar system in a kind of permeable relationship to the larger uh, galactic whole and so forth. So um, I see these new discoveries and changes in, in naming and so forth as all being part of a, uh, a kind of postmodern crucible of uh, like a underworld descent uh, where the old identities and the old structures and, and uh, certainties are being dissolved so that we can enter into a richer engagement with the whole of life. That, uh, with, with, and not constrained by our assumptions and our um, kind of the, the, the egoic bubble that ha has cut us off uh, from a, a greater immersion in the flow of life. Right. Yeah. I, um, <clears throat> in terms of the downgrading, I mean, it's been interesting in terms of the idea of making big things small and small things big that when pluto was first discovered they estimated that it must be about the size of earth but then throughout the 20th century it was continually downgraded in size and they realized it was smaller and smaller and smaller and then um eventually we did have the actual demotion of pluto in 2006 by astronomers and mike brown who the astronomer who discovered eris wrote a book later ironically titled how i killed pluto and why it ha why it had it coming um, but then eventually, uh, the New Horizons space probe was also launched in 2006, that very same year, and that ended up doing a flyby of Pluto in 2015 and catching some of the first actual uh, close-up photographs of it and scientific readings of Pluto that ended up, over the course of the past several years, giving us much more information about Pluto than we had before, and interestingly, it turned out that Pluto is much more interesting to scientists um, than thought previously, because now they're starting to think that it has a large that it has a rock core as well as a large deal of water underneath the surface, which could then end up being um, make it one of the more interesting planets in the solar system because it could be some of the elements that could support life on Mars, some sort of biological life or something like that. So there may yet still be you know, a re-examining of Pluto, or maybe its importance might be magnified again at some point in the future with some of these recent discoveries after it was actually witnessed close by for the first time. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting you bring up that correlation between 2005 and six because um, the planetary scientists who were doing the uh, that mission were outraged when Pluto got demoted by the by that group of astronomers and there was quite a conflict between Mike Brown and the head of the uh, mission for the uh, uh, Horizon, uh, who, and um, I have a I have a nephew who is a, a, a planetary scientist who w w works at the Jet Propulsion Laboratories, and he 
he he told me he said you know in among the actual scientists who are doing this research they paid no attention to whether pluto is called a planet or a dwarf planet that, that was kind of like mike brown's you know he mike he said mike brown is kind of like he it, a uh, an aggressive trickster who likes to push buttons and and uh and he he likes to upset that that apple cart but he said among the people who are actually doing the research they're just doing the research and they they they're they kind of stay outside of the conflict between the uh the ones in the uh, scientific community who really opposed the change and the ones who were in favor of the change and uh so i just don't actually give it a lot of uh, focus myself i mean um, I refer to Pluto uh, as a planet, which whether you call it a dwarf planet or not, I mean, a dwarf human being is a human being um, uh, with just as much nobility and, and potential for um, uh, high achievement and, and value as, 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 as a big human being. You know, I mean, it's just, that's, that's not a par particular um, uh, feature that I think determines significance. Uh, I don't pay uh, that much attention to it, so that's the shorthand uh, uh, response to that. And it looks like there's, it'll probably go through some changes in in the future. There could be many more planets, fully called planets, or they may be uh, fewer, depending on you know what the what a particular community of scientific interpreters decide at a given moment but that's that's always in flux yeah some of those distinctions that astronomers make are not always necessarily relevant for astrologers but it's just interesting symbolically um some of the things that are happening on earth and some of the things that are happening in terms of our investigation of this planet as humanity um as well as just you know now Mike Brown is searching for, and they think there is another large planetary body somewhere out there that may or may not be discovered in the not too distant future. And then we'll see what sort of things happen in humanity that coincide with that discovery if, if it happens. Yeah, which I'm very interested in. And yeah, I think Mike Brown's team is do, doing great work. And, uh, you know, the, the um, discovery of like Sedna, for example, is, you know, it's, it's quite important. We don't, we don't know exactly what. What all this is opening up to, but clearly, our understanding—I mean, what what's happened in the last hundred years, when <laughs> from the time the the, um, the Hubble uh, and um, Shapley and so forth were doing uh, their Clyde Tombaugh and so forth were doing their research, from that the recognition of the multiple of the many galaxies, the expanding universe, the expanding cosmos, um, cosmic background radiation. Uh, then um, recognizing exoplanets and uh, <clears throat> trans-Neptunian bodies, the Kuiper Belt, the, the, the uh, likelihood of the Oort cloud, and so forth. These are we have such a different um, a, a understanding of the universe than than we did before. I think maybe what I'd like to end on right now, getting back to Pluto and the. Um, the discovery of the outer three planets, which um, Dane Rudyard beautifully described as the uh, that they were the ambassadors of the galaxy, uh, and you know for 
18th century, 19th century, and 20th, 20th century, those three bodies were the ones that pushed us past the Saturnian boundaries of our reality principle and opened us to uh, a, a much bigger universe, a deeper one, and, and they, were, they were the transpersonal planets, as they've been called, and so forth. And the discovery of those three planets astronomically through the telescope the fact that as those are being discovered and as the inner world was opening up through the uh, interior self-explorations of, of, of the, uh, whether it was the romantics and then the depth psychologists and, and you know, William James and um, Jung and Tony Wolfe and, and, uh, and, and Groff and so forth, there's been this by the time you get to Groff and you get to recognize that these powerful archetypal complexes that are associated with the death rebirth experience and the reliving of our own birth, um, that these perinatal um, stages are all so closely connected to the four outer planets of Pluto, um, Saturn, Neptune, Uranus, uh, that the understanding of the inner meaning of these planets and the discovery of the outer uh, meaning of the planet or the discovery of the outer existence of the planets. And that, that this is happening right at the time that our civilization and our species and our planet is going through a death-rebirth crucible of transformation seems to me of great significance. It's as if the cosmos is giving us, you know, like the breadcrumbs to m make our way out of the dark forest to home. It's, it's like it's giving us the, the uh, clues of insight that we require to help mediate, navigate this uh, tremendous um, transformational moment that we are in as as a culture and as a as a as an earth community i think it's a great gift and it, it shows the cosmos in some senses cares about the earth and is paying attention to it and is every time an astrologer sees correlations between the movements of the planets and the and a person's life or uh their you know their birth chart and their and their biography and so forth Every time they look at uh, where the planets are now and see something happening at the same time and see the correlation, that's that's a sign of the Earth's being bathed by the cosmos with meaning. Like we we are a moving center of cosmic meaning, uh, and therefore have significance in the in the larger scheme of things, even though we're the, just this tiny meaning-seeking planet. So. Um, to me, astrology provides for those who have the great grace to open up to it or to be opened up to it by life, by circumstances, by a opening of their heart and mind, uh, some initiatory experience. Anybody who has that gift, that grace, is in a position to be able to um, feel that we are embedded in a larger cosmos of love and of uh, deep meaning and astrology is is a kind of gift from the 
goddess of the cosmos's beauty and love. I mean, that's basically how, how I look at it. And cosmos seeks a discerning partner, you know, who will uh, love and glory in that in the beauty that it, it's it's displaying in this way. Uh, that's a brilliant point to end on, and just your point of humanity being at such an important turning point, and shortly after the discovery of Pluto having development of the atomic bomb, and for the first time the ability to wipe itself out and completely destroy itself, but not yet, and also being on the verge of such an important turning point where it's also reaching outside of the Earth and outside of its own solar system and the potential for other really great, more positive things, but it clearly being an important turning point. Um, and maybe that's a great, great point to end on. Yes, uh, yeah, and 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 Chris, you're you're a great interviewer. Um, I really appreciate the uh, the care that you take and in, in preparing for an interview and then um, organizing it and bringing high quality both to the technical and to the substantive parts of the interview. I I know you're doing. Um, you're giving great gifts yourself to the astrological community uh, month after month, and um, it's been a pleasure to have this uh, very very long afternoon conversation with you. Thank you. You'll have to. I appreciate that, and you'll have to. Uh, I have to apologize and forgive me for my own uh, Sun, Pluto, and Scorpio tendency to you know take things to the utmost extreme <laughs> in having what was supposed to be a very short two-hour conversation and blowing it up into a four-hour. One, but thank you for bearing with me, and thanks for joining me for this today. Um, let's mention one more time, really briefly, changing of the gods, because uh, that's really something that we'll go into much more detail about some of your work on Uranus and Pluto when it comes out in January, right? Right. Actually, it's February. Uh, I think the um, full launch date is February twenty second, like two twenty two twenty two. Okay. And yeah, there's a. Uh, um, a whole trailer on their website, which is changingofthegods.com. Yeah, yeah, and we can thank um, Kenny Ausable, uh for conceiving the film, and then the film was very much made in a, a kind of collaboration between uh, him and um, Max De Arman and uh, Theo uh, Badashi, and uh, also uh, Louis Schwartzberg. It was quite a collaborative collaborative effort, and one thing to keep in mind is that it's based on Cosmos and Psyche that was finished and published before this Uranus-Pluto square began. So everything that's in the film is basically kind of examining, well, given the patterns and the meanings that Richard Tarnas uh, set out in Cosmos and Psyche, Let's look at see when Uranus and Pluto next came into alignment, which is after the book, after he published it. Does how does it bear out in terms of the patterns? You know, in terms of civil rights, in terms of the women's movement, in terms of ecology, uh, in terms of uh, scientific and technological um, breakthroughs, and 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 so forth. So uh, it's a they they they've done a really good job over the last uh, seven years, and uh, I, I appreciate they. They would come to me for you know I mean I I'm interviewed a lot in it and um, uh, fortunately two of my students Max Darman and, and Theo that I mentioned uh, were played a, a major role in the making of the film and they 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 were very dedicated to keeping the astrology accurate as well uh, and 
Stan Groff plays a role in it. Um, there's, well, you'll see there's a, a, a lot of the great, um, a lot of major thinkers and, and uh, visionaries and activists uh, of our time uh, play a role in, the, in those 10 episodes. So I think there's going to be like a pre-launch period in, in February where each day one episode will be shown for free. Anybody can watch it. And then, uh, and then I think uh, February 22nd is when it gets launched for everybody to be able to see the whole thing. Great. Awesome. Well, people can check that out at changingofthegods.com. And I'll be interviewing the director, Kenny, very soon for upcoming episode of the Astrology Podcast. And I think it just does a great job of giving much more insight into the meaning of Pluto by studying some of those historical cycles. Uh, so people should check it out. And um, yeah, I guess that's it. So th thanks a lot for joining me for this today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. And um, thank you, all of you who, who uh, will listen to us. I, I, I hope we um, conversed about things that you, you might find valuable. Definitely. All so right. Long. Thanks, everyone, for watching or listening to this episode of theastrologypodcast.com, and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKinsey, and Kristen Otero. If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And in exchange, you'll get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month, access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you would like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune where I traced the origins of Western astrology and reconstructed the original system that was developed about 2,000 years ago. And in this book, I outline uh, basic concepts, but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart, including some timing techniques. So you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com book. The book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course, which has over 100 hours of video lectures where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. Also, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, 
and the Astrogold Astrology app, which is available for both iPhone and Android at astrogold.io. There are also two major astrology conferences happening this year. The first is the Northwest Astrological Conference, happening May 26th through the 30th, 2022, near Seattle, Washington. Find out more information at norwak.net. And the second is the International Society for Astrological Research Conference, which is taking place August 25th through the 29th, 2022, in Westminster, Colorado. And you can find out more information about that at isar2022.org.